Hello and welcome to Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that spews more BS than Scout's resume. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. And I'm Jay Fisher. And I'm Mike Bloom. And we are here to talk about Survivor Palau, the 10th season and one that, uh, it's a very interesting season. I don't know, it's never been one of my favorites, but I know it's always had a very pretty high, good reputation among the fans. What do you guys think about Palau going into it? First of all, I just want to say, oh my God, Mario, we made it to season 10. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Four years later. Four years later, we made it to season 10 and, uh, you know... We've had listeners that have, you know, grown up, gotten married, had kids by now, and uh, those kids have grown up and watched Survivor and are like, when the hell are the historians going to get on with this stuff? But we're here. Um, and that's really good. I, I, Palau is an interesting one. I feel like it's funny when people talk about old seasons of Survivor because I feel like when they watch something, they're like, oh, well, maybe you need to place an asterisk on this season because of this or, or, or you know, that's not a real season of Survivor. It's like they're all real because – you know, Survivor just is this changing product. But I guess this is a very asterisky season. Like, it just is, it, it feels like a weird conceptual season of Survivor. Uh, but it does have some enjoyable moments in it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think it's tough uh, because we're, we definitely see, especially in this season, a lot of shifts into uh, the tropes of quote-unquote modern Survivor. Uh, what with the bloated castaway number and some of the editing shifting to more gener- generic storylines instead of fleshing out a lot of the characters, especially pre-merge. Um, I, I think it's a good season. Um, I, I think it's one of those seasons, kind of like, you know, looking back at seasons like Africa and Marquesas, where, like, if you contextualize it in the history of Survivor, it's an extremely important season in terms of the, the storylines it sets up and the characters it provides and all these ideas that it sets up, especially when we get to the end with uh, someone like Ian, which is, like, a conversation I feel like hasn't been had in Survivor since the beginning. Uh, but then looking at it on a rewatch, it's it's interesting, especially when you know what happens. Uh, it's a little, for me, it was a little hard watching, especially all the oolong segments, knowing that they're going to go to tribal council every single time. Yeah, I found myself feeling bad for them, which I don't really remember at the time. I remember at the time just being I loved Karora, I thought they were cool, and I didn't really care about oolong. And I'm watching it on a rewatch now, and I really feel bad for the oolongs because they're not really that horrible. I mean, well, a lot of the challenges no, it's, are it's, pretty close. Yeah, well, exactly. And it, it seems like most of the time, even like the, a lot of the Karor people are sometimes being portrayed negatively, especially people like Katie, sometimes Kobe, Janu for a little bit. So like to have that and then contrast that to these extreme underdogs, especially Stephanie, and then have the underdogs lose every single time is a, it's a little uh, disconcerting. First of all, how dare you not mention Karen? <laughs> I, I, the, the sooner I don't mention Karen, the better. <laughs> You're on me. Get off. Get off me. I'm talking to you, Mike. I'm talking to your face. God. <laughs> but anyway, um, there's that. I, I sort of feel with you, Mario, like in the sense that it, it, you sort of feel bad for Oolong. But at the same time, all of the cues, because, you know, we always talk about the music cues or these cues. The cues are leading you to believe in just the buffoonery of Oolong. And... I feel like Oolong sort of goes through this fun – I mean, they go, th- they definitely go through a journey. But, you know, if you sort of sort of chunk the season down, sort of as we do on these – you know, since we break up uh, a season into several podcasts and sort of go in this chronological order, it's like Oolong starts off and you're like, well, they're not that bad because they're winning these reward challenges. They're just not winning these immunity challenges. But I feel like the more they show you of Oolong's camp – and maybe they don't hit you quite over the head with it, but that tribe really is kind of inept – 
And, you know, they're a bad tribe and people talk about them going, well, they're the worst tribe in Survivor history because clearly they didn't win an immunity and they just got absolutely just decimated out of the game. But there's a lot more going on that makes them pretty bad. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I I don't watch this season a lot. It's never been my favorite. It's not one that I don't like. It's just it's predictable. It's kind of hard to watch when you know what's going to happen. And it's interesting, the, the thought process that I had on this latest rewatch was the producers really should have stepped in and, and rigged a challenge for the Oolongs at some point. Just It just makes a little better story for them to at least have a, a, a tiny little comeback every once in a while. Like if you think of Marquesas with Amada Amus, when they have the big comeback kind of in the middle and it makes everything very exciting. It almost, when I'm watching it, I'm thinking they really should have rigged something for the Oolongs at least once or twice just to give them a little hope. Right. Yeah, I just think it would have made a better story. I think I'm sure we'll get to that when we talk about uh, the non-merge at 10 and the decision to merge at 9, whether that was a, a producer-oriented decision or whether it was predetermined. And or the decision of not to have some sort of tribe shuffle along the way, because that is, you know, for better or worse, getting kind of into the norm of Survivor at this point, because we had, um, you know, we, we had a tribe shuffle in survivor amazon and in pearl islands we had the outcast twist which wasn't necessarily a shuffle but it was just this weird thing altogether where they voted people back into the game and in uh survivor all-stars of course we had several tribe shuffles and then in uh vanuatu we had we started out men versus women they shuffle that up and kind of sort of mix the genders out so if you're looking at past recent history going into survivor palau you're thinking that at some point there's going to be a tribe shuffle now i know there was some bullshit at the beginning of this episode er, at the beginning of this season sort of setting up the tribes but the fact that oolong kept losing you know, always begs the question, did the producers have a shuffle in mind, saw that Oolong was not winning a challenge, and just said, let's let this puppy ride? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no one knows. I mean, it's just speculation. It's It would be an interesting question to know the answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, again, I, I've said before, this isn't my favorite season, but I can pay Palau the highest compliment that I can give a Survivor season, and that it's unique. There's no other season you would get misty, would be confused with Palau. Like when you talk about Palau, you know immediately what season it is. It stands out. It's got so many elements and uh, people and just uh, things that happen during the season that are unique. So that's really the ultimate compliment I can give a Survivor season. So I think Palau is a huge success that it is absolutely a unique season. There's nothing, no other season I think is remotely like it. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, again, we have to go back to the general fan reception of it and the fact that it's still kind of, right now I believe it's it's kind of like in the, the upper half of a lot of people's Survivor seasons nowadays. But at the time, I mean, I think it was a it was a little bit of a reinvigorating for the franchise. I think just between Tom winning and Stephanie as the character and the Oolong storylines, I think that kind of put a little breath of life into the series after uh, All-Stars and Vanuatu were unfortunately not so well received. Uh, Mike's exactly right. I, Palau is, we made the argument in the Survivor Vanuatu podcast, and I still stick by it, that Vanuatu was a good reinvigoration of the of of the franchise sort of after All-Stars, but it wasn't very well received. It was just more of, okay, we're restarting the gears, and then people were like, okay, you're restarting the gears. That one wasn't great. But then we get a season like Palau, and I, I think you're right, it is unique, and that's sort of what I brought up at the beginning. It's an asterisky season in the sense that it's a conceptual season, because we have this iterate survivor is a game, right? And, and we're not going to talk about it's this objective game that is totally fair. It's not fair. It's, it's a game with changing rules and sort of all these 
sorts of things in there, but it is a game at its core. And I think people like to see a game run with a lot of different iterations. They don't like to see it run the same way every time. And I think when people are thinking about things that can happen in Survivor, I think one of the things people think about is what happens if one tribe just keeps winning and the other tribe never wins? I mean, it may, you know, I think I agree with you, Mario, that, you know, rigging a challenge so that Oolong could win one along the way would have made a great story. But at the same time, I think people somewhere in the recesses of their mind wanted to see one tribe just lose all the way until no one was left. And, you know, they, they, we wanted to maybe see that iteration just play out once. And here it is. It's Survivor Palau. We get to see that. Yep. Now, one thing before we jump into it I wanted to talk about is I love comparing Vanuatu to Palau, especially how they were received at the time, how they're viewed now, and just kind of what's changed over the years. And I find it fascinating that, as we've said before, Vanuatu absolutely was not received all that well. Whereas on the flip side, like they both, Mike and Jay both said, Palau was a huge success at the time. And it wasn't just Palau. It was, you had Tom, who was arguably the most respected and beloved, universal, universally beloved winner of them all. And I, I will argue that till the day I die, that he might have been the most popular winner ever. And then Stephanie, who one could argue is the most beloved character ever at her peak. I mean, I think she was more beloved than Rupert was because she had the whole, you know, inspiration to girls, the last woman standing. She was this huge role model for girls, as you'll see when we get to Guatemala. So it's interesting to me to think that Vanuatu was not really well received. Palau was hugely received. And you look at it now, it's kind of interesting because I don't know if Tom and Stephanie necessarily have the same reputation anymore that no one really talks about them as the more beloved characters in Survivor history, which is kind of a shame. So I'm really looking forward to talking about them, in particular Stephanie, who I'm an absolute huge fan of Stephanie and Palau. I love what she did, and I think she deserved every bit of fame that she got out of it. So it's it's just interesting how the fortunes of the two seasons have uh, kind of flip-flopped over the years again, where Chris, you talk to many people now online, he basically has the reputation that Tom once had, where everyone, oh, he's the winner that everyone loves. They love Chris. It's just interesting. Well, I guess if there was ever an argument to be made of, you know, I guess exhibit A on reasons maybe why you don't play Survivor again. Yeah. It probably comes in the case of Tom and Stephanie. You know, Tom, you're right. Tom's star, as far as a Survivor winner goes, was super high. And you can't take anything away from his win here. And I don't think people do. I don't necessarily think it's that. Um, you know, people may because, you know, people do talk about different iterations all the time. But I think that most people are like, yeah, Tom played a great game in Survivor Palau. But then Tom came back for Heroes versus Villains and Tom tried to, you know, kind of bully his way through that strong arm his way through that season. And people were like, oh, really, Tom, not the best, you know, and Stephanie, even I, I think you may be right. Stephanie might have been a bigger deal after Survivor Palau than Rupert was at the height of Rupert Mania, Stephanie Mania was a thing. I was caught up in it. Loved Stephanie when Palau was coming around. But Stephanie's uh, fall from grace, I think, is even it was an even sharper fall than, than perhaps Rupert's was. I think people just rad- gradually caught on to Rupert. But like with Stephanie, you know, she comes back next season and sort of plays that game like a bull in a china shop and just everything that sort of happens afterwards with heroes versus villains. You know, Stephanie sort of takes this nosedive as far as popularity goes. And But we need to remember that Stephanie, after Survivor Palau, there was no one bigger, I think, in Survivor history than that. Yeah, and let's just point out, they've never created a season just for Rupert like they did with Stephanie. So, again, I have to point that out. I thought Mike was going to jump in there. Mike, you've yes. never been quiet on a, an opinion about Stephanie before. No, I mean, she's uh, I, I mean, I, I, you guys have pretty much ran the gamut on it. I think she's uh, 
like you, Mario, I'm, I'm really excited to get into uh, what exactly Stephanie is because I'm I'm sort of in the in a different camp in terms of like now looking back on her, it's really interesting to look at just kind of like with Rupert of like I can understand where the mania com- came from, but now especially after watching Guatemala, looking back on the things specifically that she's saying and looking at like oh. Well, if you take the context out of it, it might not sound too nice. Yeah, no, and and I agree with that as well. Like, I found even watching Palau, like, you can see, it's like Rupert, right? You can see why America loved Stephanie and why I loved Stephanie. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think, like, if you look at it with sort of, like, the eye of going back and rewatching, you can look at some of her scenes and you could really sort of wonder why. why. Why did we love her that much? You know, there were things that were great, but then, you know, I think that there is some – it's it's just a complex situation overall, and I can't wait to get into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm a big proponent of not judging characters in any season other than the one they're in. So um, it's, for me, it's easy to differentiate. I just see Palau Stephanie as awesome. I don't even think of the other two seasons when I think of Stephanie. But. No, no, no. And I, I'm even thinking in the context of Palau. We'll, we'll definitely get there. It's kind of like the Rupert thing in Pearl Islands. It's like, you know, some of the things that Rupert did, you were like, why did we cheer that? <laughs> yeah. And I noticed we're, we're kind of glossing over Tom, too, who has gone from, wow, the most beloved, universally loved winner ever to, you know, he was kind of a dick to Ian. What a bully. That's kind of what you hear a lot now, which is, again, could not have been more of a 180 change than how he was perceived at the time. So uh, there's a lot to talk about here. Well, yeah. I, th- I think that a lot of that just has to deal with, you know, when, you, when you're in the moment, you, you look at sort of the deals that Tom sort of had with Ian and, you know, the fact that Tom prevails and Ian sort of does what he does at the end, we sort of really kind of came off as very pro-Tom in a lot of things. Not that it was like a Boston Rob Lex thing from Survivor All-Stars, like, you're either on one side or on the other side. But, you know, I think that it was one of those where Tom prevailed and so we sort of looked positively at Tom. But, you know, we've had years and seasons to sort of look back and reflect and see what's going on. And I think it's just less to do with Tom and more to do with the fact that we really have to take a hard look at Ian. You know, we keep talking about complex characters and characters that, you know, deserve a second look or characters that are really way too complex even to sort of describe. We just hit on one in Survivor Vanuatu, and that was Amy. And I think that Ian is another one of these characters where you could look at him 46 different ways and sort of come up with something different each time. He is such a complex character. Yeah, I um even just watching through this first batch of episodes, I, I, honestly, from in my opinion, I think the uh, the end game really soured a lot of opinions about Ian among fans. Because like looking even back at this first batch of episodes, I absolutely love Ian as like a soundbite machine and as a character. And it's really unfortunate that like a lot of these characters that we face, we've talked about in previous seasons, um, I, the, the decisions that they make at the end, the things that they're most infamous, infamously known for, are the things that kind of uh, like discredit them, and then you know put them at the bottom, make them put them on the list of worst survivor moves ever made and worst survivor players ever. All right. Well, um, we're just about to start. But one thing I just wanted to point out, I, I like giving away kind of behind the scenes details here, but it's interesting. When we're going to do a, a season on historians, we get a lot of email. People want us to talk about this. People ask us questions. Please answer this on the air. But I've never seen a season where I got as much kind of requests from listeners, things they would like me to talk about. And it's really interesting in Palau, the email that I got more than anything. Again, this is more than any other season before we did it. I got about maybe 15, 20 people saying, I can't wait for you to tear down Tom and point out what an asshole he was. It's really, I just thought that was really interesting that there's so much rage out there from people who don't like Tom that they really want us to puncture this idea that he was a great guy, which 
I mean, again, you're you're talking to the wrong guy because I'm a big Tom fan. I'm not going to do that, but it's just interesting that I got so many requests from people to just make sure you tear that Tom down. So that's kind of the the, the mood out there these days around Tom. It's kind of interesting. Really? Right. Yeah, I, I I was surprised too. I'm like, so many people just absolutely adamant that they want to hear Tom just ripped apart. Yeah, I, mm. I, I, would, I like, would not expect that. Yeah, I wouldn't expect that either, but it's out there, and people that think that way are very vehement that they want to hear it. And again, you're talking to the wrong guy. I'm not going to do that. I love Tom. I love Ian. I don't think anything bad. I mean, I think it, what happened was just Survivor. I don't think anybody screwed the other one or was mean to the other one. It's just what happens sometimes. I think more than anything with this season, as I'm rewatching it, there's there's definitely some character archetypes, and there's like I said, I feel like Ian's complexity is is very good. Uh, but I but I feel like in a lot of ways, Survivor Palau, you know, it's got some good characters and 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 definitely Stephanie and and things like that very, hold up and stay on the test of time. But there's nobody upon a rewatch that I watched that I became super infuriated with. Yeah, you know everybody. I, I, I enjoyed, and even people that were sort of villains as the season went on, like Katie and stuff like that. I freaking love Katie on a rewatch, <laughs> you know. And so, and, and I don't mind Tom, and 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 I don't, you know, you know, I I just feel like there's not a lot of people you can really rip into except for just the general brain trust of Oolong in general. So, you know, I, I feel like if you're tuning into the Historians Podcast for us to rip somebody apart from all these things, other than James Miller, I don't think you're really going to see it. Oh come on, <laughs> or 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 Karen, <laughs> or Karen. Well, there's Karen. Never. I I take back the last thirty seconds. I apologize yes. for wasting time. Karen sucks. But again, that is interesting. That you maybe that's why I've never really responded to Palau over the years because there's not really a villain in it. That's an no. interesting point. I never thought of. Yeah, it's it's more like mildly annoying people, but there's not there's no like big villain set up to be like who will the hero Tom take down? Yeah, exactly. Because- there's no one. Because because it's such a conceptualized season, it's very, very difficult. I feel like this, there are times where I feel like editors can sort of get handcuffed, right? And this is a, definitely a season in which they sort of got handcuffed. It's like what you were saying, Mario, of maybe Oolong should have won one because the, the story would have been better. But that wasn't the story, and so they, you sort of have to work with what's going on out there, right? Yeah. And so you have this thing where Karor sort of, you know, we're going to get into all this, but Karor sees themselves as an underdog at the beginning, and we know that's not the case, Right. But it's like Karor keeps winning. Oolong sort of becomes, and especially Stephanie and Bobby John sort of become this, you know, uh, uh, underdog sort of, we just want to win. We just want to keep winning. And they don't, and they don't, and they don't. And then once Oolong is gone, then we're left with Karor. And then, but but the whole time, we sort of have to look at Karor as sort of these good guys that are, that are doing things the right way. Mm-hmm. And definitely, and we'll talk about it, they do show some of the divisions and some of the fighting and snapping that's going on in Koror, but, you know, we sort of have to look at the tribe as generally they're pretty good. And then they're left, and it's like, all right, now we need to sort of deal with the stuff that's going on in Koror. And and really, you know, Tom's stuff sort of prevails. And so I, I think you're right. The fact they can't set up this, like, villain to kind of go through the season because it's like you can't paint anyone on Koror other than Karen as, like, super bad going all the way through and then you're left with Cora, and then it's like, all right, now we need to create conflict in here. So it's like they had, I think, limitations within what was going on within the game. Yep. And let me just throw in that I think Angie would fit right in there with Bobby John and Steph as these huge underdogs you feel bad for. Oh, absolutely. Oh, Angie's great. Yes. <laughs> I don't even remember Angie prior to this rewatch, and she's like my favorite character, so it's kind of interesting. But in that sense. Yeah, she's, she's, a, she's a big star of, I'd say, about half the episodes that she's in. She's a really prominent feature. Yep. Super underrated. Awesome. 
She's the Gina of the season. <laughs> the watermelon seed spitting champion of Palau. Yes. yes. All right. So here we go. Survivor Palau. Right off the bat, one of the more uniquely themed seasons, like Pearl Islands, was the pirate themed. This one is the World War II theme, which I'm a huge fan of. I love the World War II. One of my, when I ran a Survivor game, my Survivor Okinawa game, the only ORG I've ever run, it was all World War II theme based, exact same thing. And I, I love that they actually did one on the real show. And they go, they go hard with this theme in this season. I mean, every, every challenge is a battle where they're fighting each other. They got the planes underwater. You got the submarines, the boats, the, the cannon they have to shoot. I just love this theme right off the bat. Yeah, they. I mean, now it, in modern seasons, they always go back to the Philippines and to Samoa. I wish they had gone back to Micronesia because, I mean, granted, they went back in Survivor Micronesia. But what, like, a combination of a beautiful location, the ability to have water challenges, and then these, like, this awesome history that I'm, I'm, I think they only touched the iceberg on it. But it's such a, a rich place to visit. And I, I really enjoyed the theme with this as well, especially... Uh, you know, between the blue and blue and uh, brown tribe colors, and you know the even even down to like the props that they're using the challenges, to the fact that the challenges in general were a lot more physical and a lot more of like two tr- two troops going against each other and one side prevails. I think that's something that we really hadn't seen on Survivor before, and we will really have will not see again. So again, it's another type of asterisk in terms of its planning. What I like about it is it's it's almost like the pirate theme from Survivor Pearl Islands in the sense that, you know, they use the actual location as inspiration, as in this was a place where, uh, you know, some battles in World War II took place and there was wreckage in the, in the, in the, in the, in the landscape, just as we see in a lot of those just beautiful uh, exterior shots that they're showing us. But it's not a hard theme to really execute because to execute like a World War II theme, I mean, they, they showed you like on the buffs, they've got, you know, Sergeant Chevrons on there. And as you said, you know, they, they had more adversarial battles, like in the one battle where they had the battle over the ring and the water and take it back to the platform. It's just like a, a, a boat life preserver. That's not hard to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the the when they at tribal council, when they're voting and they put their vote in the in the urn, it's not an urn. It's an ammo box. You know, those are not hard things to sort of to sort of decorate out your season and yet it's so effective and that's things that i sort of wish that that seasons like that wouldn't go i know everyone's like oh you hate modern seasons i don't hate modern seasons but there's no love put into things like that and that's not a hard one to sort of to sort of get by and yet they just did it so well it's just like a well thought out season as far as the theme goes I'm, I'm I'm only sad that Sarge wasn't on this season because I feel like Rupert is to Pearl Islands what Sarge would have been to Palau. Yeah, <laughs> you don't think Karen was that to Palau? <laughs> I just imagine Sarge being like, "We gotta take him, we gotta shoot him, and murder them all." <laughs> One thing that's interesting is when I was listening to the theme song, I've never really paid attention to the Palau theme song before, but there's this military drum in there. Yep. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. I, again, I just hadn't noticed it until this time, and and it's funny the just the music in Palau. It's not. It's very driving, serious. It's not fun. Like it's interesting. Pearl Islands has that pirate music, which is kind of whimsical, and mm-hmm. it fits the theme of the season. It's a kind of a whimsical season. Palau is not whimsical whatsoever, and it kind of fits the theme of it with the music and everything and the battle. And so it lends a little more credence to the idea that maybe the producers saw one tribe just getting decimated, and they kind of just went with it because it fits the season. It's not fun. This is not a fun season. No, it really isn't, and it's 
I, I think you're right. And that's why, you know, the Survivor theme is I, I always consider one of the best themes to ever be on television. And, and just the fact that in a lot of these early seasons, you know, Russ Landau is able to sort of theme it to what's going on. And, you know, you have that the, the snare drum in the background sort of with the with the uh, military beat uh, going on in there. And just the fact that, as you said, it's very driving, you know, and I feel like, you know, Vanuatu is a very driving theme, but it's it's got a lot of sort of earthy and, you know, tribal tones to it, which is, you know, sort of reflective of the islands of Vanuatu. But like this one, it's, it's, it's very military. It's very precise. And it's just very, Hey, let's get on a boat and go. And, you know, they, they did a lot of cool things, uh, you know, later on with this theme as well. But I have to say right off the bat, Jeff Probst super dick moment, because, (laughs) you know, as he's explaining the season, Jeff Probst is driving this like big speedboat where he's like, you know, where the, the, the captain's wheels like way up at the top. Right. And he's up there and he's like, I'm driving along Palau and there's 20 survivors fricking paddling a boat somewhere. But I'm not in that boat. I'm driving around the speedboat. <laughs> I'm on a boat. Yeah. Well, what you don't know, uh, Jay, is that actually off camera, uh, Crockett and Tubbs are pursuing him. Uh, <laughs> he got in some trouble at the emissary, so they're after him. I like uh, that you said there was a Jeff Probst dick move in episode one, and it wasn't the Wanda and Jonathan thing. So that's well, good. So he has two we, dick moments. We, we've got lots of Jeff Probst dick <laughs> moments in this season, but like right off the bat, like, you know, we get the little theme, like the intro music coming in, and then all of a sudden we see Jeff Probst, and he's just, I'm speeding around the boat. And he's just like, yeah, somewhere freaking out there, there's survivors are paddling this thing. And then you just see they're like feebly paddling this boat, and he's just like, yeah, we'll, we'll go catch it. We'll, we'll, we'll play the theme music. I'll totally catch up with them. It'll be great. Yeah, well, they had to follow up him standing next to that dormant volcano. <laughs> so they're like, all right, I guess we'll put you in a speedboat and you can lap the survivors if you want to. And I love it. Like, they're paddling in the boat and then, like, Jeff Probst, like, you know, does, like, a figure eight around him. And then he finally just, like, stops and he's just like, what's up, guys? And they're like, hi, you have a motor. <laughs> They would, it would have been great if they would have gone all the way with a World War II theme and have him like in a bomber actually dropping bombs on them as they're trying to paddle in. Like, <laughs> I'm in a B-12 flying fortress dropping bombs on these fuckers if they try to get to the island. Yeah, so they won't need to worry about the pick then. It's just the two that don't make it to the beach are eliminated. <laughs> yes. All right. So, anyway. so a, bunch, a bunch of firsts right, right off the bat here. We got the first season with 20 players. Yes, 20, mm-hmm. 20 individuals. So that, yeah. that theme song by Russ Landau, for those of you who are like Survivor theme geeks, that's got an extra 10 to 15 seconds on that theme because we've got more people in the game. Yes. Uh, what else is a first here? We got the first mu- openly Muslim contestant, I believe, Ibrahim. Yep. Ibrahim, yep. yep. <laughs> who most people don't remember was even on the season, but it was a prominent thing, the first Muslim. Um, what it, else is a first? There's, about- there's not a rule that the first of, of some sort of thing has to be like an entertaining character, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. He was just there. Uh, it's the first time, we'll get to this later in the episode, but it's the first time that they are immediately put on the beach with no tribes and no instruction as to what to do. Okay. Uh, it's the first Mormon girl with a huge rack. Oh, Ashley. <laughs> so another person people don't remember. Ashley was on this season. Uh, let's see. We The first season with two different showmances on opposite tribes. You got the Jeff and Kim and then the Greg and Jen. Uh, the first season with a Christ-like figure, Ethan's on excluded. <laughs> we have the we have the first we have the first shark. Well, no, we that's not the first shark kill because Richard killed a shark. But you know this this is the first time that you know. Well, I mean, those guys freaking killed so many dangerous animals in the season. Yeah, there has to be a first for something in there. First time they're actively risking their lives without producers pushing them to do so. Yeah, there might <laughs> this- be that. 
One thing that Rob Sesternino used to love to make fun of on his old show, The, the Fishbowl, this is the first season where you have Katie who actually gains weight during the season. <laughs> uh, I'm sure this is not the, unfortunately not the first Katie joke that will be made about that. <laughs> the first time a player looked exactly like the immunity idol. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Good old Willard. And I think the first is, is, is coming up here as well. The first time the individual, is this the first time the individual immunity is given out before yes. any tribal immunity? Uh, we'll just say yes. I'm sure we're wrong, but I'll just say yes. Yeah, we, 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 could, we could totally be wrong. But uh, I guess that, that starts us out. I mean, we'll think of more firsts along the way. But as Jeff Probst Dickley comes up in his speedboat, he's like, what's up, guys? How you doing? We're about a mile out. You see that shore way over there? Yeah, that's your beach. You need to get to it. And on the beach, there's two immunity necklaces, one for the first man that reaches the beach and one for the first woman reaches the beach. I'm going to shut up in a second, and you're going to paddle this boat to shore. You can jump out and swim anytime you want, even though you're an idiot if you do so. <laughs> now, uh, we, now we, we, we'll obviously talk about, and everyone remembers that Stephanie and, to a lesser extent, Jonathan are the people to jump out, but they're not the first people to get up. No. No, no. <laughs> uh, no, as soon as Jeff basically starts talking about it, Kobe immediately stands up and makes for the for the side of the boat. <laughs> he makes for the side, and what's funny is that you hear people like, no, 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 let's paddle, let's paddle, it's a mile out. <laughs> that is a great opening, by the way. It's, it really kind of sets the tone for Palau right off the bat. Yeah, it's adversarial, right? And he's just mm-hmm. like, get to the beach, there's immunity necklaces waiting. All right, see ya. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, it's really interesting because apparently uh, there's like a little special on the on the Survivor Pullout DVD that apparently the contestants were told, kind of like Pearl Islands, uh, that they were just going in for a sunrise photo shoot yes. in the big boat and that they were supposed to wear clothes like they would wear to work. So much like Pearl Islands, they are most of them are now stranded with like button down shirts and slacks and they have to now also swim a mile to the shore. <laughs> and of course, I'm I'm a big fan of who has the first confessional of the season? Because it sets the tone of a season. Like in Pearl Islands, one of my favorite, where where Sandra drops a curse word. But this one we have, maybe my all-time favorite first confessional of any James. season ever, where James, James says, Jeff's a some bitch. <laughs> and then there's another little thing that James does in his confessionals where he starts to say the F word, and then he changes his mind at the last second. He's uh-huh. like, yeah, something told me we was pretty much in trouble. The producers probably showed them uh, the Vanuatu winner reveal, and they're like, don't do that. (laughs) But again, that's the perfect opening confessional to the season is James Miller. Because he's a very major character throughout six episodes. He's in almost every scene at Oolong. You hear his voice. Yeah, watch for James, because not to plug everything of Mario, Funny115.com sponsors this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that one of the better entries on the Funny 115, because it's it's entirely accurate, is James Miller, the reverse oracle. Yes. And, and it's it's fun to sort of remember that going in, that most things that James predict aren't going to go his way. Yes. And, and he's so confident, though. So it's like, A, watch for it, and B, laugh at it. <laughs> it's the perfect yeah. formula. All right, yeah, so we're going in. They, there's the two immunity necklaces on the beach, first man and first woman to get them, get individual immunity. And So, yeah, it's a very tense scene where they're rowing in, and they have to make this, this uh, individual decision. At what point do you jump off, and when is it faster to swim than to paddle? And it's great because they're just, even though the boat's pretty large, like it's a pretty large rowboat, you know, it has to fit all 20 people pretty comfortably. You know, it's just the fact that, like, they're all there's just one necklace for one of the men and one necklace for one of the women. And they're all sort of looking at it. And it's like, yeah, they're about a mile out. People forget like when you're a mile out on water, you are like forever out there. 
So like that paddle must have taken – I mean it, it, it had to be a while. It wasn't just 10 minutes or something. Like they had to be paddling for a long time. And it's like they all – they are allowed to talk at this point. But there's no tribes. There's no anything. They're just looking at the, at the shore. They're paddling this boat. And like they all are just doing all this mental math in their mind. Like do I go out now? Is this, What's it going to look like? Do I need to do this? And then you could see them like posturing like, oh, I'll row in the back of the boat. <laughs> yeah. And there's all that sort of sort of musical chairs. And it's just – it's all this subtle mind games going, and I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And it's just a great way to sort of start this season where you just kind of put them all in sort of this this pressure cooker within the pressure cooker, like just this boat. Like what has to be going through your mind at that point? Well, I'm sure they uh, they actually – it seems like they had some entertainment for the long boat ride. Oh, my God. <laughs> the song stylings of Wanda Shirk. <laughs> If there was ever a, if there was ever the quickest GG ever in Survivor history, it's when it's when you know, like they said, if Wanda just goes up there and just sings like one song and then sits back down, that's that's not much of anything, right? Like you just be like, oh, that was really sweet that she did that and stuff like that. But like they said, apparently she just wouldn't stop singing. <laughs> I disagree. I think she would have sucked even after just one song. Duh. I just wrote that in my notes. Wanda starts singing. Then I wrote, Wanda can shut up. Uh, I love it. She's like the Nick the Lounge singer of Survivor. (laughs) They found a more annoying version of Lil. Oh, my God. She gets up and starts singing, and then uh, you're just looking at her, you're like, well, GG, well played, Wanda. No one's ever going to vote for you for anything good. Yeah, and then you have Willard's confessional about how he wanted to knock her off with the oar. And And then that's the last we hear from Willard for about four episodes. This lunatic jumps up and starts singing. I got to tell you, though, like Willard doesn't have very many confessionals, but when he does, it's actually a pretty decent like it's, it may not be like a zinger or like a like a one off. But like there's some substance to everything that Willard says very oddly. And like this one's great because he's just like she wouldn't sit down and I just wanted to knock her down with the oar. And you're like, I think you just encapsulated what everyone on that boat was thinking. <laughs> So maybe because, you know, they want to get ahead or maybe because they hated Wanda singing. Uh, Stephanie and Jonathan, as I talked about before, are the first to jump in thinking they're good enough swimmers, which is a, a horribly stupid idea. It's the equivalent of you having your friend give you a lift home and then get it, getting out of the car and trying to run beside it and see yeah. who gets there first. That's it's, what's confusing. Like Jonathan, I don't, you know, we don't learn much about Jonathan, unfortunately, because he's not long for this game. But like Stephanie, we see her in challenges going in the future. Je- Stephanie is very adept in the water. She's a very good swimmer, right? Mm-hmm. And so you would think she'd have more sense than that. Like that's the whole thing. Like, yeah, I know you want to jump out and, you know, run, you know, dive for it, but they were still quite a ways away from shore. And it's like you have to know that the boat is going to go faster than you swimming. Like, I know that it's just infuriating being on this boat paddling in at, at a pace, you know, trying to get to shore. But it, as Mike said, it's equivalent of, like, if someone's driving, like, 15 miles an hour down the road and you're like, well, stop the car. I'm going to get out and run faster in the car. It's like, no, you're not. You're not going to go faster than the car. You really aren't. Stephanie's a fantastic athlete. She's got the spirit of a warrior. She never gives up, but she's not that good at physics. <laughs> so there you go. And I do like, um, as the boat's passing by, Stephanie and Jonathan are kind of like jokingly uh, saying like, oh, can we get back in? And then Kobe just quips, yeah, what are your names again? (laughs) That was great. That's so good. (laughs) Well, I have to say that's such a Stephanie move, her jumping off just to be like the the showboat and like the the athlete. And it's funny that they use that in the opening credits, that you see that shot in every episode of the season. Stephanie jumping off the boat. Perfect dive, by the way. Perfect form. 
Yeah, great dive, and you know they go, but it's the whole thing. You're not going to go faster the boat. And I love that just that that uh, that realization. Like they jump in, they take about like four strokes, and by that time the boat has passed them. Yeah. <laughs> Although what's even better, I forget who it is. I think it's Karen and somebody else at the end where everybody else jumps out of the boat, but a couple people stay in the boat, kind of right to the bitter end, before they realize that no one's actually paddling it. So staying in the boat buys you nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's Karen. Karen's Karen's relative was uh was the unsinkable Molly Brown. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Titanic reference. Ugh. Yes, but anyway, uh, with Stephanie and Jonathan out of the mix, the boat slowly gets to shore and people start to it gets to a point where they're in the shallows and it makes sense then to jump off the boat and they jump off. There's a mad scramble. And Ian is our first guy, our dolphin trainer, Ian, to reach the the uh, the necklace for the men. And it's Jolanda that gets the the necklace for the women. Was there any male who was close to Ian or he just was not even close? I think I think Greg was like kind of close, but like a probably a pretty like but probably back a few paces whereas like J- Jolanda and Jen it came down to pretty much like neck and neck Jolanda just reached out further and grabbed it yeah I was gonna say it's a it's a nice metaphor for Jen in the season that she a lot of people forget she was right there with Jolanda for the necklace she was a really good athlete but that's kind of her story of the whole season she's always the second best female athlete because they're Stephanie yeah this will be a running theme through the season Jen is always the second best female athlete that's fun. It's like a Nancy Kerrigan type of thing. <laughs> it's just like that, yes. Wow. <laughs> so so I, 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 are we the first podcast to ever compare Stephanie to Oksana Bayul? <laughs> I think we're going uh, to Tanya Harding. I don't Tanya think we're Harding. Going I, guess, I guess who would be Oksana Bayul? Katie? D- who cried a lot. Someone who cried a lot. So Janu. Janu. <laughs> <laughs> good, good to see that Janu's winning gold medals in figure skating for Ukraine. <laughs> oh, Ukraine reference. <laughs> All right. So yeah, this is where, and then Ian gets the necklace, and then we get another confessional from James, who's already killing it in the confessionals. Recalls Ian a fast little booger, although it's this exact same thing as before, where he starts to go for the F word, and he changes his mind. He's like, that Ian, he's a fast little booger. (laughs) (laughs) Again, just little James things to listen to when you watch these seasons. Yeah, and I do like at the end where like they go and you know they, they get there, they get the necklaces, people are high-fiving, they're sort of hugging and all that sort of stuff. And as we you know sort of kick out to the commercial, because you know, we sort of establish the fact that, yeah, they're on the beach, but they've been given no direction. And that's going to be the theme coming back, so we can talk a little bit more about that. But I do love that the shot going just before this commercial break is the fact that Stephanie and Jonathan are still swimming in and they're like a million <laughs> feet away. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I love that. I love little little editor jokes like that. Mm-hmm. All right, now we get to I believe the first bonding pair of anybody in the season, which is one. It's a storyline that a lot of people kind of forget if you haven't watched the season recently, which is the Kobe and Angie bond. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I, I didn't. I think one of the things that people really noticed about the Palau cast in particular was that it was full of the quote pretty young people, especially on the people that eventually made up the Oolong tribe. Um, and I think Kobe's kind of Kobe has a very interesting storyline throughout this season as well. And I think the major storyline that he champions is one of being the outcast and being the one that's always uh, not with the the majority group on his tribe. And it's it's most it's most prevalent here. Though we'll eventually talk about how Kobe kind of screws himself uh, in the tribe pick'em with that motto. Yeah, it's just just to point something out. We talk about the history of Survivor, kind of the important things that were happening at the time. You mentioned that there was a, this was a very particularly good looking cast, especially Oolong, and that's one of the things that kind of was a big deal at the time among uh, 
Survivor fans on the internet is that I believe it was Wanda who kind of dropped the news on everyone. Wanda came out in some interview and said, you know, half the people in this cast had never seen the show before. They were just recruited just because they were good looking and athletic. And she was a little shocked when she realized that. She goes, it was like the first time in Survivor history that I was playing against a bunch of people who had never seen the show before. And <clears throat> that is kind of the historical significance to Palau. This is the first season where they really started using recruits. Yeah, and I just wanted this... to point. Yeah, I just want to point that out. Like you said, they were all good looking, and it was kind of a bombshell. I know Wanda dropped that in an interview, and a lot of people kind of jumped on that on the message boards at the time. Yeah, it was. I think. I think this is really when the term "mactor" really emerged amongst the Survivor fan community. Yeah, it, yes. this, this is the first very mactor dominant season. Not that we're saying this is the first season in which a recruit shows up, because no, no, no. But uh, yeah, this, this season there's a lot of these just good looking mactors that are out there. And uh, it really, as we said, a lot of them eventually end up on Oolong. And is it coincidence or not coincidence that Oolong is just a frickin' mess? Yeah. Who knows? All right. So, yeah, so we get these early bonds here. You got uh, Kobe and Angie kind of bonding over being outcasts and not looking like everyone else, or Angie in particular. Uh, then you got uh, Greg, Karen, Kobe. I know there's a bond kind of with them. You got Tom, Stephanie, and Ian. This is a bond that actually comes in important later in the mm-hmm. season a lot of people forget it started here on day one that tom Steffi, and ian was the first real final three alliance out there yeah we get these things going on and what i love about these stories is like you said with tom stephanie ian this is something that's going to pay off down the line but you also see things like kobe and angie and that's gonna this is going to pay off and i think mike said it right this is sort of it sort of sets up kobe's storyline for the whole season but it also pays off immediately within this episode when we get to the pick'em later with kobe and angie and 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 then angie kind of moving forward i think they did a real good job highlighting some stuff for us and sort of laying out some good storyline narratives that we can follow yeah and that's why actually in retrospect i actually granted the twist that happens afterwards is not so good but i actually really do enjoy this quote-unquote one tribe for i guess one day twist because i think it's a really nice way for not only everyone to get to know each other and really figure out who they want on their tribe but to figure out these it's a greater percentage of cross-tribal alliances than something like a tribe swap Mm -hmm. absolutely because yes the first alliance is the one you tend to stick with so why not have the tribe swap alliance be the first one yep all right so yeah one of the other storylines we're about to lose jonathan here and it's one of the other early storylines is about how nobody's bonding with Jonathan. Nobody really knows him. And Kobe notices this. And Kobe is going to start steering the vote towards Jonathan. And I, I forget, is there a reason for it? Or is he just, they're trying to find an easy target. Is there, does Kobe have a reason not to like Jonathan? I think, he, I think he just says that he doesn't really connect with Jonathan, which makes him kind of suspicious of him. And, and like you said, and like we've talked about before, with specifically Rudy on the All-Stars commentary, with the first boot specifically, nobody really guns for someone it's usually if you just suggest a name to some person and it isn't their name they're going to go with it uh, and probably and kobe's probably functioning under the uh the paranoid reality that they're all going to be going to tribal council that night or something so he wants to get the throw jonathan under the bus as quickly as possible yeah you start to see the scrambling because this this is important sort of uh game wise contextually for people we are talking about just these lovely shots and this lovely storylines that they're setting up but let's just talk about the nuts and bolts of the game right now these 20 individuals are on this beach, and all they know is that there's this one beach. They haven't been given buffs. They haven't been told anything other than here's your beach and the game is on. And so they're trying to figure things out. It's not like they necessarily know things that, 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 that we 
that we know they know or anything like that. We don't, as audience members at this point, don't even know what's going on. We just know that Ian and Jolanda have an immunity necklace and that there's 20 people and they're on a beach. So they're sort of scrambling to make a shelter because that's sort of what you do on Survivor on day one. You sort of get shelter. So they sort of split up. There's shelter builders and people go to get water from the well. But as Kobe sort of points out, because they don't know tribes or anything that's going on, people are trying to secure an alliance right now because they don't know what's going down the line. I mean, you hear Tom and Stephanie sort of talk about Tom's like, well, I'm sure we'll get separated out into tribes. And I'm sure, you know, they sort of can expect what's going on, but they don't know when it's going to happen. So the scrambling for alliances happens immediately. This is, you know, and I'm sure it happens. We know it happens in seasons that start off a little bit more normally. But just for the fact that they don't know what's going on and they don't know what's coming around the corner, this sort of scramble happens right away. And Kobe uses it to his advantage because he sees that Jonathan's not necessarily bonding. He doesn't connect with Jonathan. And Kobe does that smart, subtle thing that we always say with people where he says, hey, who are you going to vote for? Hmm, that's cool. What about Jonathan? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's absolutely kind of what happens. That's uh, Jonathan's done in very early just because other people's names aren't Jonathan. All right, so now we have Probe showing up at camp for the first time, and this is where he explains everything. All right, the immunity necklace means you're safe for the next 10 minutes. And he pulls Ian and Jolanda aside, and this is where they get to pick their teams. Not before he comes in with a lot of, what's up, guys? What's up? What's up? <laughs> at, least at least he didn't like, ride up on like a dirt bike and splash mud in their faces. <laughs> Look at what I can do with my ATV. Don't you wish you had one? <laughs> no, he does, he does walk up sort of from the woods, and he's just like, what's up, guys? What's up? I bet you're all wondering what's going on. And then, you know, he pulls Ian and Jolanda and says, you know, how do you guys feel with that immunity? And they're like, pretty good. And he's like, cool, because it's about to run out. <laughs> Hell no. Hell no. And he basically, <laughs> he basically explains that Ian and Jolanda, you will start the pick em. And as you guys know, there's 20 people. I have nine buffs per tribe. That means the two of you will not get to go to the tribal phase of this game. Yep. It'll be Wanda and one other person. <laughs> Wanda, just get on the boat right now. Wanda, do you see the boat that I was driving? It's totally out there. You're going to be on it. But you can't be up in the captain's chair. You have to sit. You have, you have, you have to sit in the deck below. All right. So here we go on the pickums. Uh, this is the second pickum in Survivor after Thailand. Correct? Did yes. I am I forgetting one? Okay, this is the second. Yeah. And it's interesting they went back to that since I don't think Thailand really worked out that well for them, just because the producers have no say in who's on the tribes. So it's interesting they would go back to that well again but here we go we're gonna get one really good tribe and one really bad tribe and what's funny is that just like thailand things sort of shake out kind of the same don't they i mean when jake and jan pick the tribes jake picked the younger athletic group of people mm-hmm. and uh, jan sort of picked the not so younger athletic group of people and uh it's sort of what shakes out here now you know the the general age and stuff like that of the people of plow make it sort of different and to be fair uh, Chewie Gon and Sukjai were a little bit more even in their immunity challenge wins, a little bit more than uh, Oolong and Karor are about to be. But, you know, when when you have the survivors pick a tribe, it always tends to look like you would think by, you know, now two seasons of this happening that uh, one tribe tends to get a lot younger than the other tribe. Now, in a million years, would you ever look at this cast and think pick Katie would be the first pick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if any, everybody I want on my tribe, I want Katie. But it shows, and what I like about this is that unlike Thailand, where Jake and Jan just picked the whole tribe, right? What Ian and Jolanda are doing is they're just starting the schoolyard pick. So Ian's first pick has to be a girl. And then once he's picked, 
then she needs to pick the next person. So Ian's not picking the whole tribe and Jolanda's not picking the whole tribe. They're just picking the next person and then that person has a decision, which I think is unique because then each person's preferences sort of come into play. Yeah, it's yep. that, and especially I think that's a lot more fair, especially when it comes down to the fact that two people will not get picked and eliminated. I feel like if it was a similar situation in Thailand, if they started off with 18 people, for example, I think a lot of people would have... There would have been a lot of outcry behind that just because Jake and Jan could choose a person each that they just didn't like, and that person would be eliminated from the game just because one person didn't like them. And we never would have gotten Clay, who was a diamond in the rough and who was the last pick. Very true. Or Aaron. <laughs> Aaron, yes. All right, so it's interesting that Ian picks uh, Katie with his first picks, considering he's in a final three alliance with Stephanie an odd thing when you watch. I mean, obviously he had an alliance with Katie too. That's why he picked her. That's the only reason you'd pick someone. But he could have picked Stephanie, and they were already in an alliance. So I guess he chose his. He picked his loyalty very early on. He did. You know that they're. They, you know it, we didn't see all the bonding. Like we just saw some key bonding that's going to set up storylines for us in the future. But clearly, Ian and Katie have a bond. I mean, he didn't just pick her out of the blue. They're, they must have been talking at some point. Yeah, I, I think again in this like little. DVD special. Uh, Katie does talk about how after the Steph, Ian, Tom coalition formed, they ended up bringing Katie into the fold that night and that morning. So again, I'm not sure why Ian picked Katie above Stephanie, but she was definitely brought into the fold by that point. Yeah. It's, uh, so of course, the one thing that everyone remembers from the pick'em is when Kobe doesn't pick Angie. Kind of leaves Angie out there to die. Which I know a lot kind of gets mentioned. That doesn't really get brought up later in the season, though. It's just kind of the one thing in this one that's interesting. Um, but the one thing that jumps out to me when I'm watching it is how come nobody's picking Ibrahim? Like this guy's what about six, four, he's all muscle. Like, but he's like the second to last pick right before Angie at the end, if I recall, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe it's sort of like a Jonathan situation. I mean, in general, Ibrahim seems like an extremely quiet person. So maybe he just wasn't socializing with anybody. And as a result, they, he didn't really make any bonds. So nobody would pick him. I think, yeah, I mean, at this point, people are thinking alliances, you know, and I think that one of the advantages to disadvantages, perhaps, you know, if when Jake and Jan are just picking a tribe in Survivor Thailand, and you're picking with people that you like to bond with, but I think they're thinking very much tribe overall, you know, tribe performance and things like that. And you're right, Mario, when you're looking at people in a lineup, you'd look at Ibrahim and go, this is a guy I want on my tribe because he looks you know, he looks strong. He looks pretty nice. You know, he, you know, he ticks a lot of boxes as far as, you know, it, ideal tribe mate as far as, you know, uh, passing the eye test go. But at the same point, these people were given, what, a, a day or so to bond with people. And as we, we can sort of uh, take out from, from the time that Ibrahim spends on Survivor Palau, he doesn't seem like the most chatty individual. And, you know, perhaps he didn't bond with people. And the fact that, you know, just one person is making one pick. So Ian picked Katie. Now he's done. Now Katie has one pick. So it's like you just need one person to pick you. And it's like if you didn't bond with these people, then, uh, you know, perhaps you just aren't, you know, they're not thinking overall like the tribe. Like they're not taking a step back going, OK, do we need strength? Do we need this? Like they're just picking people that they bond with because they want to work with them or, you know, or play the game with them down the line. And just think of what an ego blow it must have been for Jonathan not to get picked and Willard did get picked. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan's like, seriously, Willard? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I really would have liked, I mean, uh, I know you talked offline about this, Mario, that like this feels like an episode that should have been longer, hour and a half or even two hours. And it's got, it feels like it's been very rushed and truncated, but it would have been nice to even just know more about Jonathan's perspective and even just how he felt after that, just like a post-confessional. Cause I would have loved to know what John, like what, was Jonathan surprised? Did he expect that he was on the outs with everybody? Yeah, that's, Jonathan's one of those fun, forgotten figures in Survivor history. People remember Wanda. No one really remembers Jonathan. Yeah, well, Wanda, of course, has you know just a couple of spectacular scenes. She does get a confessional before she leaves, and she had, of course, the singing on the boat. And then, of course, when they're making a shelter, she's singing while they're making the shelter. So, you know, if you didn't get the hint that Wanda was annoying everyone with her singing in the boat, they give you another scene there. But really, with Jonathan, there's not a lot of that. I mean, he just kind of gets out there, and he seems eager to, you know help and make friends and stuff like that. And it's just, you see Kobe sort of swaying the vote against him because, you know, he, it seems like he can, you know, and then, and then Jonathan leaves, but I, you're right, Mike, it would have been fun to know more because, you know, there's a lot of times where I feel like people sort of watch people who play the game and say, you know, this person got a real unfair shake and I think they could have done some damage in another season or with a couple other people. And I think that you could probably say that in theory about most people. But a lot of times you're like, well, you know, we did get to see this person play Survivor for a few days. And it wasn't super great. But with Jonathan, you just don't know. Like he just, It seemed like he just didn't have a chance before he got there. And I don't even know if he did anything wrong. By the way, if you were keeping track at home, yes, that was Jay calling both of Wanda's scenes spectacular, thus lowering the bar for the definition of the word spectacular. It was spectacular does not mean great. It's just, just, it, was a, it was a spectacle. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was a spectacle in what it was. You were watching her just sing these really Ako Taco songs at people, and you're like, what is this? Yeah, I mean, and then now we get to see her get on the boat and uh, make Leonard Bernstein roll over in his grave. <laughs> And while well, Jonathan has to sit there and listen to it. Jonathan's just had the most humiliating experience of his life, and now he has to listen to Wanda sing for the next hour. Yep. So Willard is the last man picked over over Jonathan, right? Yeah. Uh, so for, what for Karor, and then Angie's last, right? Yeah, no surprise there. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised Angie got picked at all. But I mean, who was? Oh, uh, I guess the uh, the uh, alternative was was, uh, was was Wanda. So yeah, no, I guess that doesn't yeah. surprise me. But yeah, Angie. Angie is not the type of person who would do well with first impressions in a social game just because all well, the piercings on her face and stuff and all the tattoos, just an odd looking person. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately there's a there's a stigma associated with that look of like being closed off to begin with. Yeah, I, although I feel like, you know, uh, in, in the year that we're, uh, you know, saying this podcast now, I think that that's a more accepted look. Yeah. than perhaps yeah. it was back then. So, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe just wrong decade for, for Angie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you, guys, if you guys ever saw uh, Celebrity Mole Yucatan with Stephen Baldwin and Dennis Rodman. There's oh, yeah. Great confessional in there where Stephen Baldwin's talking about how people underestimate Dennis Rodman. They're like, he's like, you, you never think Rodman has anything going on in his head because he's got the piercings on his face, the tattoos, and he's just freaky looking. And then Baldwin goes... Now, of course, Dennis, when you hear this on TV, I meant freaky in a good way, like freaky good. <laughs> so that's that's what I think of when I see Angie and it's like that's the first impression you get. People just see all the piercings and stuff and like, wow, she's an odd person. So does that mean that we're going to send Angie over to North Korea sometime soon? <laughs> yes. All right. So what do you guys think of this twist where uh, where two players got invited out there, went through all the interviews and never even got to play? They had to go home. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> it's, it's... I... Go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was going to say, I love it just because of your reaction. I love I, how mean and harsh it is, and I just love that you never forget it. It's just, it's just tough because I, uh, I sort of dislike it in the way that fans dislike the outcasts at the outset and why people abhor Redemption Island to this day is because it basically goes against the whole idea of Survivor in a way. I mean, granted, it's more of a roundabout decision in that, you know, some, you know, seven, 18 pip- people didn't pick you instead of just a tribe vote and one person picking you or a tribe voting you out. But still, like, these people were not necessarily voted out. They weren't even given a chance to do anything in the game aside from chop some wood and be on a boat. So it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth to this day. See, I would argue they did get a chance to do a lot in the game because the game is social. Yeah, but I, guess- I, I see your point. No, I see your point, though. All I know is that, you know, there's these guys, the super fans, that go to all the events and know all the players and stuff. And I know... To a man, these guys all absolutely hate the Palau twist because of how unfair it was and how horrible it was that Jonathan and Wanda got their hopes built up and got went all the way out there and had to like take time off from work and didn't even get a chance to play. So among people who really know these players, they absolutely hate the Palau twist. Whereas I really don't know players on a personal level. I have no interest in knowing most of them. And just from a TV perspective, I love how harsh and unfair it is. I just love it because it just reinforces the notion that Survivor is a brutally unfair game. I think that for me, again, it, it goes to the fact that Palau is very conceptual, right? I like the fact that they conceptually did this. Um, and I don't necessarily – I mean if we're talking about things that are – because Mike is right. The core of Survivor is start with a couple of tribes of people, vote them out one by one until you get a winner. But at the same time, if you're, if you're, if you're looking at that, a final three where you have final three people at the end – and basically you vote one winner and two losers is sort of going against the whole voting people out one by one by one. And this one I actually sort of accept because they didn't have tribes yet. They didn't have anything. They just stuck these guys on a beach and then they formed tribes and they just essentially knocked two people out. And, you know, they, they sort of make up for it in the sense that when you watch the credits for the subsequent episodes, because when you watch the first episode Palau opening credits, they just have the 20 survivors randomly on the, the screen when they, when they show the credits. And then in episode two, I think they have them in their tribes, Oolong and Karor, so as not to spoil the surprise for you know the rest of episode one. And I think they, what, stick Wanda in with the uh, Oolongs, and they stick Jonathan in with the Karors, sort of, you know, in the, in the opening credits somewhere. But it's like, in a, in a sense, Oolong voted one person out. And it was Wanda because Angie was last picked. And then Jonathan was sort of voted out of Karor because he was Willard was last picked there. So I sort of agree with it conceptually. I think it's super mean. I mean, there's nothing nice about it. It is incredibly mean for these people to get out there and then sort of get eliminated right off the bat. But as Mario said, they were out there for about a day socializing and they were socially cut by the, by the other people for you know, it seemed fairly, perhaps in the case of Wanda, and perhaps unfairly in the case of Jonathan, but we don't know. And uh, they had a chance to sort of play. Also, we also see, need to remember what a victory it is to even make the cast. Yes. How many people do you need to beat out to, to, to make it to that cast? Thousands upon thousands of people, right? That's true. Mm-hmm. Jay just went for the Tammy Leitner uh, school of cheering people up. You guys were all winners. We're all, we all made the jury. You should be proud to get this far. Wanda can say, I, w- I was on a season of Survivor. I am an official Survivor, whereas I cannot. So there you go. <laughs> and she'd probably sing it, too. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, be great. absolutely. It would be a spectacle. <laughs> yes. All right. So now we have our two tribes. 
and you have Angie feeling like she doesn't belong on Oolong and very sad. And and her storyline will become more important later. But for now, let's get to the first challenge. Wait, before we get to the first challenge, just to talk about this real quick. They pass out the buffs, right? And, you know, Oolong will wear blue and Karor will wear brown. Like, my wife is even, she's watching this, she's like, Karor just sounds so awesome and Oolong sounds like a tea. That's true. <laughs> or like a noodle. <laughs> so some Dr. Seuss mysterious green goop. <laughs> Do not eat the oolong if you want the foodong. <laughs> yes. And when the Karora has the, the, the roaring claws that we'll, that we'll come up with later, their little roaring victory chant. But yes, that is a good point, that one tribe sounds awesome and one sounds like something horrible. Well, even, even, even before we get to this challenge, though, the fact that we get the buffs, we get the, the tribe names and stuff like that, and then Jeff's like, yeah, you're still here on the beach. I mean, they're still just on, they're all still together working on just kind of one shelter and they're both tribes. So the, the bonding inner, inner tribe ways can still continue. Yes. Which precursors what uh, one world by many years. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's get into the challenge because we got to get going here. Yep. This is the first challenge for reward and immunity. And it's the obstacle course where they have to untie a bunch of crates one with, i believe is fire one with food and one with water and they take that along and basically whichever tribe takes less supplies has an advantage running through the obstacle course but whichever tribe takes more will have an advantage back at camp so you have to decide what's more important to take yeah, yeah. i think i think we stumble upon the uh inherent disadvantage that oolong has in that they just don't think period about anything in this game Oolong has a problem, and, and, and as I said at the beginning, Oolong is, you know, has gone down in history, you know, by people. When people talk about worst tribes of all time, Oolong usually is number one on all lists that you see. And, you know, people, I think, can try to go back and say, well, maybe that's not the case. Maybe another tribe was more inept than Oolong. I would disagree. This tribe is super inept on a lot of levels, and this first challenge really shows you. I mean, they just blow it on all accounts. Well, again, you have to go back to the fact that most of these people had never seen the show before. So perhaps they're not aware you should take fire. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the fact is, is that, as, as was pointed out by, by, by Mike uh, explaining the challenge is that, and Mario, is that they had these three heavy crates and they were extra weighted, right? And one of them had like rice and beans in it, which was food. One of them had water and one of them had supplies to make a fire. So you could take as many or none of them as you wanted. And basically, if you won, you got whatever you dragged along with you through this obstacle course and the, you know, big canoe race at the end. So it's like you don't want to take none because if you win, you gain nothing. But I guess tribal immunity. But, you know, Oolong just starts untying the boxes and they're untying the food and the water and the fire. And Karor just says fire only. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's a, it's a smart thing to do because, I mean, if fire essentially kind of leads to both or at least helps prepare the other two so it's the main thing to bring meanwhile oolong's arguing with about what to do and jolanda is basically the one spurning like no let's just take as much as we can because we're gonna win anyway and that way we'll have as much as we can though again the uh the flaw in that logic there is that you need to win the challenge to get the items right so so what happens obviously is because karor sort of just says fire only they 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 very calmly grab the fire and they take the lead right off the bat into the obstacle course. I mean, we know from watching Survivor history, these obstacle courses are not short. They are long. You have plenty of chances to catch up, to pass people, for people to sort of drop out and stumble. 
So you know you have time, but at the same time, you don't want to take frickin' forever, right? And so Kuro just takes the fire only, and they take off, and then Oolong panics because they have untied the food and they've untied the water, and they're like, oh, shit, we got to go. Yeah. So then they, they go, they're behind, and they don't even grab fire. Yep. Yeah, so, but then they probably think, you know, oh, we'll just catch him in the water, but that is uh, definitely not the case with Oolong. <laughs> Yeah, not only have they not watched the show before, they've also never paddled a boat before. So it's a double whammy. Despite the fact that they did it two days ago. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll bring that up again. But yes, not only are they losing through the entire, you know, jungle-type obstacle course going over things. And again, World War II theme coming in. The fact that they've got these, like, ration boxes and that they're going over these sorts of uh, uh, things like that. They finally get to the canoe part, and you could see Karor. They're paddling together, and Ian is at the back of the boat, like using the oar to steer the boat, the the canoe, in the direction they're going. Whereas Oolong just gets in, and they all are just furiously paddling on whatever side of the boat they want to paddle on. And they, I mean, even Jeff is like, "Where are you going? They're going <laughs> to another island." I mean, it, at that point, it's not even Jeff Probst's dick moment. It's like Jeff Probst dropping truth bombs. And at one point, Stephanie jump, jumps out of the boat and tries to outswim the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, Karor wins. And Karor wins, and that. it's not even close. Yeah, I mean, no. it is, it's just a stomp. Yeah, get used to that, by the way. Karor wins. Uh, but Karor's actually faced with a really interesting choice afterwards. So, I mean, so Karor wins the, su- the supplies that they have, which is essentially the, the crate of flint. But then Jeff says, uh, so... The two tribes will now separate into two different camps. Karor, as you've won the challenge, you can choose whether you want to stick with the camp that you guys have worked on for the past two days or go someplace completely new. New adventures! We want new adventures! Right. And we sort of get... It's it's funny because Tom, our golden boy, is sort of thrust into this choice where, you know, he, he gets to sort of decide and people are like, Tom, you know, say it. But as, as sort of, it's sort of hinted at later that it's not like Tom made this sort of unilateral decision like where they just went, Corey, get to choose. And everyone went, Tom, choose. And then Tom was like, we're going to go new adventures. It seemed like there was a consensus that people wanted to go to the new beach. But Tom is the one to sort of voice it. They turn to him as sort of the voice. So we get to see Tom emerging as Coror leader like two seconds into Coror being a tribe. Yes. <laughs> so Coror... Gets to go to the new beach. They uh, paddle out to the new beach, and their boat immediately flips, and they lose the fire. <laughs> that's that's great. That's so good. Wonderful start for both tribes in this season. <laughs> oh my god, I, I love it, and I love like the the shots that you can tell are not you know cleanly edited. Uh, so you can tell that these were cameramen just standing on the beach, and they did not expect the boat to capsize at all. So it's just like a randomly clipped shot of a cameraman choppily zooming in on the boat. Yeah. It's some interview in there. I forget if it's Tom or Ian. They said, yeah, a big wave came up and knocked us over. But if you watch the footage, there's no fucking wave. It just falls over. They just tip over. They tip over. I mean, there is some tide issues there, but you're right. I mean, it just seems like they tip over. Uh, but what's funny is that, if it, it feels like this, like again, when you watch the tribes get picked, I guess they don't even really mention it much. Like there's there's a lot of times when tribes get picked where you get interviews or confessionals people going, "Oh my god, look at our tribe and look at their tribe. We're totally great." And there really wasn't a ton of that in this episode. But Karor was like, "Yeah, we're the underdogs because you know we're less physical than the Oolong tribe. It was really good that we underdogs got this victory." And, you know, that's kind of the last time, like, Karor keeps talking about themselves as the underdogs, but it's like, as the season's going to go along, they're not. And not <laughs> only are they not, they are so very not. But it's like, is this like the one underdog story we can sort of get, whereas they absolutely pub-stomped 
uh, Oolong, and then on the way to their new camp, their boat frickin' tips over. And they're like, oh, no, our boat tipped over. We're such underdogs, you guys. <laughs> yeah, I completely forgotten about that until I watched the season again, that for the first two episodes, they really harp on that, that Karors are, are the underdogs. Like, really? Yeah. I, that, that's not the that's the very last thing I'd think of when I think of Palau. But yeah, it's really in there. Those first two episodes where Ian compares them to the Bad News Bears. Yeah. Oh yeah, we just can't get our act together. We're terrible. He's <laughs> like the boat tipped over and we lost the thing. We could get it back another day, but right now, God, I mean, aren't we just underdogs? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to drive the narrative. Drive that narrative. All right, so let's go over to the real underdog tribe. <laughs> <laughs> so. Angie is the early target, obviously, because she's freaky good looking like Dennis Rodman. And uh, but this is where Stephanie decides to rear her head and start uh, changing things around. And this is where Stephanie makes the questionable decision to go after the strongest female on their tribe. This is sort of this is, I think, what Mike is hinting at and what I'm sort of agreeing with Mike about where like you, you understand Steph mania. But at the same time, why did we root for Stephanie here? Stephanie has some questionable logic. Again, in all fairness, the Stephanie mania doesn't come until about episode four or five. Once we get up there, it's not at this. It wouldn't it wouldn't have been at this point. No, but short short memories. No, but at the same point, <laughs> Stephanie is being set up. Stephanie, for the most part, and 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 for, to a lesser extent, Bobby John. But let's not talk about him. Let's talk about Stephanie. Stephanie is seen as, and she's going to be portrayed as, you know, the ultimate underdog in the season, and you know, the heart and soul of Oolong, and sort of just this this person that just is so good and yet can't win. And she, it, it, we're, we sort of have to see that everything that Stephanie says, we sort of, as, as a people watching the show, have to agree with. And so Stephanie's confessional here afterwards is, you know, Jolanda cost us that, that, that challenge. Yep. And, you know, you look at it and, you know, she has logic about it. Whereas at the beginning, we should have just taken the fire. And yet Jolanda wanted to take all of the things and then we panicked and got behind. Now, you can objectively look at it and say, you know, I bet you if Oolong took the fire and were first to the boat, they still aren't winning that challenge. Yeah. But not even close. Not even close. I, I, I think Oolong loses that challenge 10 times out of 10 because they can't steer a boat. But, it, but Stephanie's like, you know, Jolanda costs us the challenge. And uh, she points out sort of where Jolanda did take the fall. And that was when Jolanda at the beginning was like, take everything. Yeah, it's it's actually interesting how their choice in the challenge kind of reflects this choice here. I, w- I won't say Jolanda is the biggest physical female asset Survivor has ever seen, but it's interesting that in both cases, Oolong kind of purposely leaves behind the most useful thing to take out of all three options, and uh, they just choose to soldier on without it. Although one thing that this bothers me much more in the more recent seasons, in the later seasons of Survivor, they love to make decisions look like they were just made by one person. Like, oh, Russell Hance told people to do this and they did it. Now, if you, although if you watch this episode carefully, Stephanie's not the only one gunning for Jolanda. Ashley and some other people are saying, you know, Jolanda's bossy. We don't really need that. She kind of gets on people's nerves. So as much as Stephanie takes the hit for this, she's not the only one trying to get Jolanda out. No, and in fact, you can make the argument, and, and not even make the argument, but you could correctly uh, make the assumption that Stephanie doesn't drive the narrative of Jolanda's boot at all. Yeah. Like, she's the first one to sort of say, you know, I want to vote for Jolanda, but everyone else is like, no, we got to vote for Angie. We got to get Angie out, right? And they okay. kind of shoot her down, and then, you know, we get more time with Jolanda, and Jolanda is saying, you know, hey, for every two hours we work, we need one hour of thing, and then... You see, like, what is it? It's like Kim and, and Ashley and, you know, like a whole gang of people. And they're basically like, yeah, maybe we need to get Jolanda out. 
that leads me to an interesting point, something I guess you'd brought up earlier. Are the editors making Stephanie look bad early on? Do you think they're trying to make her look like a buffoon? No, I mean, I, I think if Palau was a modern season, I feel like this would have been a much more heavy-handed decision. I feel like it would be, you know, Jeff's comments afterwards would be so much more scathing about like, well, Oolong, you just voted out your strongest member. Let's see what you can do from there. And I'm sure like, the you know, the previews and all the recaps would be like, and Oolong made mistakes right off the bat by getting rid of their strongest member, Jolanda. So I think they were a lot more subtle in this editing here. Uh, but looking back on it, again, with all this contextualizing history we have at this point in time, I, it's it's kind of a boneheaded move. Well, that's what I, was, what I was saying is that Stephanie later becomes the golden child who can do no wrong. Like, again, maybe the most popular player in Survivor history. Like, the editors clearly aren't going for that early on. I'm curious if, if they were surprised by Stephanie's popularity and kind of softened her edit later on. I'm just curious. It's, it's kind of leading on something Jay mentioned earlier. There's that, but at the same time, you look at the fact that, you know, I don't think they're necessarily setting Stephanie up to be such a buffoon here. Um just for the fact that Jolanda does go home. So, like, Stephanie wants Jolanda to go home, and she sort of gets shot down, and, you know, you can... But then you see other people arriving at the same conclusion. I I feel like, narratively, we're supposed to agree with Stephanie. Like, Stephanie wants Jolanda to go home, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you said, Stephanie Mania is not happening right here on episode one, but it's going to start happening. But it's like, if Stephanie wants something, we, you know, it seems like we as an audience should want that, too. Okay. And I'll so, go for that. and to me, I'm, it's kind of like they're setting Stephanie up to be the voice of reasons, not correct. But it's like Stephanie feels like Jolanda should go home, and so, and and so we as an audience should feel like Jolanda should go home, and Jolanda does actually go home here. But I think it's great that Mike's like, you know, they didn't they didn't have you know like Jonathan was left on the beach, you know, and and ultimately that was Karor's last pick, you know, to to pick a male, and you know Oolong's last pick was to pick Angie over Wanda, so it's not like you know they left Jonathan there, but it's like Jonathan's left on the beach, and now they're going to vote out Jolanda, who's like the strongest person on their tribe. Yeah, a very poor decision. So many points that you can you can point out. Like at what point did uh, things go wrong for Oolong? You could say it's the Jolanda boot. You could say I would argue it's more of the Jeff injury later that really does them in. But there's so many d- different points you could even. Highlight to say this is where it really goes long for goes wrong for you Oolong, and it's tough because Jolanda is such a physical presence, and I, you know I think that she's bringing something good to the table. It's something that Oolong desperately needs. They do desperately need someone to be some sort of central leadership hub, mm-hmm. but they they just you know I think that she just took it to a level that they weren't with, and I think that Oolong just as as a tribe as the people that made up Oolong they really were resistant to having that centralized sort of sort of mouthpiece for the tribe you know and i'm not one of those people that's like you know because every once in a while you'll see especially in early seasons of survivor where sometimes people are like you know our tribe needs a leader you know and it's like a tribe doesn't necessarily need a leader but oolong there's something else going on there and you'll see it and you'll see it with these early episodes their votes go all over the place yeah Yeah. and we've, we've reached a point in survivor where that shouldn't happen yeah, they, they don't need leadership as much as they just need consensus. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, it's interesting. And again, I think it shows a lot about Oolong's impulsive tendencies in that, like, the problems that they have with Jolanda could have easily been remedied if someone like Stephanie had just, like, sat her down and said, like, look, a lot of people on the tribe are finding you bossy. Can you tone it down? But then instead they're like, nope, get rid of her. She's a cancer. Yeah. We gonna do democracy, y'all. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We, we Americans, we're going to yeah. do democracy. 
No, this is this is again the very first of James incorrectly predicting something that will happen when he confidently states, "We gonna win some matches. We just didn't win today." Oh, uh, James's drawl <laughs> is just the best. Like not not just it, it, it's it's not necessarily just the tone, and his tone's great too. But just the drawl, just everything that sort of gets drawn out, and in that way where everything sounds very deliberate. Ah, oh, James. It's the my best. favorite. My favorite is how he uses the word "come on" as like a period at the end of the sentence, where he says, "Uh, later he's like, uh, Kim lifts a coconut up to her milk every so often. Come on, like that's just the end of the sentence. That's where it ends." <laughs> uh, this is a damn fine tribe. I think you're right, though, Mike. If 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 Stephanie, because Stephanie is is being seen as this really good person on the tribe, not good as in like a force of good, but you know, a a, a physically capable person who seems to have a head on on their shoulders, you know, sort of deal. And it's like if if Stephanie goes to Jelana and says, "Yo, tone it down. We'll follow you. We, you know, or or you know, you you could do your thing and and whatnot. You just you're coming off a little strong. Can you back off a little bit? You know." If that happens, maybe they can course correct. They could take out because really here, in theory, you should take out some of your dead weight. But instead, they go for Jolanda, who not only is a huge physical presence, she could have provided some of that consensus that Oolong is so desperately going to need. Yeah, I, I I think even without Jolanda in that first challenge, I think Oolong still would have taken like who knows, maybe even like an hour to make that decision if they wanted to do it by democracy. <laughs> All right, so that's the end of Jolanda. She's taken out because Oolong is going to do democracy, and she doesn't do democracy. So they cut out their leader, and uh, that's about it for episode one. Anything else you have to guys have to say about this one? This is like this is going to be the least messy vote that Oolong's going to have in a while. Yeah, but oh. it's still but it's still messy because oh, Ibrahim yeah. and Bobby John still vote, vote in the minority. It's not a straight eight to one vote. Yeah, no. <laughs> This isn't eight to one, like, you know, Bobby John's just like, well, I'm going to vote Angie. <laughs> I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing, gosh. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't gotten to his Napoleon Dynamite moments yet. That's, uh, that's Guatemala. Okay. All right. Okay, my only, my only other comment that I wrote down on my notes here for episode one is that I find Angie's dragonfly cleavage to be unnerving. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's constantly being blurred. Anyway, we'll move on. Wow. Way, way to bring that to an uncomfy level. Awesome. Yes. All right, episode two. Uh, at the start of episode two, they do a recap of episode one, and mercifully, they cut out all of Wanda's singing, so I love them for that. I'm surprised her the, the previously on wasn't just, like, underscored by her singing. <laughs> I love that everyone, like, when Wanda's leaving and she sort of sings the song as the boat's leaving, you know, some people are getting teary because I think, you know, the fact that they're, they're relieved that they survived the schoolyard pick em, you know, and, and just the fact that, you know, it, it is sad to see two people sort of heartlessly get cut out of the game. But maybe also they're crying because they're so happy that this is the last goddamn time they're going to hear that song. <laughs> I love that they're egging Wanda on to sing. They're all saying, sing, sing a song when, you know, God, you know, uh, perfectly well they can't hear her because she's so far away. <laughs> like, go ahead, sing, sing as much <laughs> as you want. And Jonathan's like, what the hell, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here, guys. You hate me that much? All right, episode two starts with Karen whining about something. Karen whining that... Uh, wait, 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 hold up. What? <laughs> yeah, I know, sorry. This is a new concept Yeah, this is me. the Karen whining episode. Um, well, it starts off with, um, as, the, as the title suggests, rats are everywhere at Karor, and Janu finds three of them. And this also starts the storyline of Janu just not being able to handle anything in Survivor. 
Yes. So, so basically, Karor figures out that their that their island that they picked the the Gofa New Adventures Island is uh, you know got a lot of it has a rat problem, you know, and the, and so they go that and the fact that they can't build a fire their first night because they dumped their fire tin into the bottom of the ocean were such underdogs. Now Karen is upset and she goes to Tom and says, "You shouldn't have done that." Yeah, and Tom, Tom, Tom is very diplomatic, and he just sort of listens and all that sort of stuff. But Tom does bring out what I was sort of mentioning earlier. Tom's like, you know, Karen's like, you should have, you know, put it to a vote. And what's funny is that Tom is sort of hinting that if they had put it to a vote, go to a new island probably would have won. But, you know, Karen is basically establishing that Tom has established himself as a leader and people like Tom, and uh, it's annoying. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I think Katie kind of rationalizes it later and just like one of the things i just absolutely hate about karen is that she's this type of person where something goes wrong and she's the first to immediately complain about it and that they shouldn't have done it and it, i just hate that mentality because you know whatever happens happened there's and especially in a social game there is no use sitting around grousing about decisions and events that have already occurred when you have all these other decisions to look forward to i mean as, as katie said oh well we're here get over it Starting a nice season-long conflict between Katie and Karen. Yeah, and, and that's, that's even a kick into further gear, I think, even in this episode. But yeah, the fact that, like, you know, Karen's going to Tom and saying, you shouldn't have done it, we should have we stayed. You know, it, I think that's right. You know, Mike sort of hit it on the head where Karen's just like, it seems that first night was pretty horrible and they've got a rap problem on their camp. And you know, Karen's like, well, you know, I knew we should have stayed. <laughs> okay. You know, and it's like, <laughs> okay, well, we didn't. You know, and and we've got this thing going and, and, you know, Katie, Katie, what I love about Katie and what you have to love about Katie is that, you know, Katie is as close to I I feel like Katie is almost as close to a a quote unquote villain as they sort of paint. But she's not. She totally isn't. And on a rewatch, Katie is so awesome. Every one of her confessionals is just dynamite. And what's dynamite about it is that it's cutting, but it's not always, you know, not everything is like super, you know, crafted or presented she's just super blunt <laughs> she's tart yeah yes. <laughs> no katie she's an interesting person because absolutely was not well liked by the audience at the time i mean i remember the message boards the fans on the internet just people just hated katie no one liked her and when she got trashed at the end they're like good but like these days it seems like most people tend to like her because she kind of is very representative of the online survivor fan she's kind of snarky like, she kind of speaks for us. A lot of the times I find her saying things that I think I would probably say if yeah. I was on an island. So she's one of those people whose reputation is she's like Chris in a way that she seems quite popular now just because people see a lot of themselves in her. Yeah, I, I would theorize. I mean, I don't want to necessarily connect her and John Cochran's stories completely, but I feel like it's sort of a, a similar thing in that, like, a lot of online fans saw this sort of unathletic, very quippy person be able to speak for them on television and really, especially in the roles that they're thrust into, kind of comment on the ridiculous situations around them. And I think viewers eventually sympathize with that character. And I think once Cochran kind of came around and everyone uh, began to see a lot of great things in them, I think Katie, the opinions of Katie definitely came around as well. There's that. And I think that also, you know, even though opinions in this game is ever shifting and changing, I think people still for some reason, hold on to this thing of, you know, a person who goes far and makes it to the end and survivor needs to have these certain qualities, mm-hmm. you know, and then you have Katie who is unathletic, 
you know, and I mean, yeah, Sandra made it to the end and Sandra was unathletic and, you know, Sandra didn't, we, you know, do all this sort of stuff. But it's like, you know, Kate, you know, it's sort of overshadowed by the fact that Sandra goes to the end with Lil, <laughs> you know, and Johnny Fairplay. Yeah. And it's the fact that Katie is there with Ian and Tom, you know, and it's like you're like, well, here's Tom. I mean, Tom is, you know, the Silver Fox, New York City firefighter who, you know, is leading a tribe, winning challenges and, you know, doing all this sort of stuff. And you have Ian, who's just awesome Ian. And then you have Katie. Well, in all fairness, Sandra was constantly shifting alliances and stuff. Katie never leave, leaves her final three alliance from day one. She just rides it right to the end. So I think that's what a lot of people kind of have a problem with her. But see, my argument is I, I don't really care how good a player is, how good they are at Survivor. I just care if they were interesting and made the episodes better. And I think Katie's hilarious. I think every oh, scene yeah. she's in, she's yeah. pretty funny. So I don't really understand the criticisms of Katie that, oh, she wasn't a great player. I'm like, who cares? She made the episodes better. I don't care if she was a good player. Right, but people do care. You know what I mean? Yeah, people yeah. aren't always you. And so that's no, no. how it goes. But that's, I know, that's that's what it comes down to. That if, if you just look at Survivors as characters, I don't see how you could dislike Katie. And I'll, and I'll put Katie above Sandra because Sandra has been known to both wash a dish and clean a fish. <laughs> yes. And Sandra has never compared Bobby John to Jesus Christ. So That's true. That. No, no, no sock puppet shows from Sandra <laughs> as of recent. <laughs> That's the, the big chink in her armor. The Sandra doesn't have the sock puppet thing yeah. going. <laughs> Katie's so great. I do love that she punctuates that confessional about, you know, gri- griping about Karen griping. Just basically saying, oh, well, we're here. Get over it. Yep. And I like I, I like that nobody followed up on Mike's point that Cochran solves a lot of the world's problems. So good job, Cochran. You did it, Cochran. <laughs> yes, we could. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're back at Oolong Camp in day two, and James is thrilled that Yolanda's not there. And this is where he starts going off that we're going to do democracy. We're Americans. No one's going to tell us what to do. And they immediately cut to a shot of the Oolong sitting there and no one knowing what to do, which is a hilarious little transition. <laughs> Just again, little things like that that Survivor's so good at. So we just gonna sit here, or hell yeah, come on! <laughs> and then, and I love also that right after that, it immediately cuts to the challenge as well, <laughs> and that, and that's what's happening with Oolong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so here we are. Here we are. The reward challenge in episode two. This is the one where uh, they have to go through the obstacle course, and the other tribe is throwing bags of sand at you. Again, adversarial. You know? Yeah, it's... exactly. This is the first season where I think like. You know, in Thailand, you had the attack zone challenge. The first time that they got to make physical contact with one another. This is the first season where every challenge has an attack zone. Yeah, this yeah. is the attack zone season. Yes, which is perfect because this is also the first challenge where Bobby John goes crazy and goes ape shit. Yep. <gasps> oh, my favorite. <laughs> so yeah, basically, it's this it's this obstacle sort of challenge. Think almost like that pirate ship from Pearl Islands, but you know there is no pirate ship. But it's it's like they have to swing a rope across a a, a ledge and then. They have to kind of go across sort of a uh, like a like spinning barrel sort of bridge and go grab a flag and sort of do it the opposite ways. And it's like when they're on the the second part of the challenge, uh, the opposing tribe has got like sandbags on ropes that they can kind of swing and try to knock them off. <laughs> but uh, really what this challenge comes down, Oolong's going to take it. So, you know, Oolong gets a gets a reward challenge win here. And they basically do it on the fact that Angie, you know, just, you know, beast modes this challenge. And also the fact that Katie can't uh, can't can't do a rope swing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Katie, a very poor rope swinging technique. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah, but you do you do have some great. I mean, Oolong is sort of uh, that that carefree toddler that is kind of running around flailing their arms, and uh, many of these people get injured. Uh, James, first first flag that James gets, he tries to you know pull a Michael Jordan and like 
long jump across to the platform and just like eats it. <laughs> well, James is interesting because he's he's got a weird body shape. He's all legs. I don't know if you noticed that. He's like a frog. He does this weird little frog jump and he collapses onto the he hits he hits the dock from a weird angle, and just collapses. It looks very painful. He totally bists that jump. And you know the 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 whole point of the thing was was that you know if they knock you off the water then you have to start all over again. But if if you somehow like if you get knocked partially in you're still good. So then we get the good shot that they use in the opening of Bobby John where they knock Bobby John off the uh, off the spinning barrels and he he keeps trying to like hold on and hold on and hold on and he just starts to like scream and scream and and but oh Bobby John watch, watch the temper there buddy. Yeah, yeah, he's covered with blood if you watch that afterwards. He has blood all over his chest. And there's a shot earlier in the challenge before that happens where they throw the bag of sand at him. And Bobby John, I love his transition from calm, mild-mannered southern gentleman to screaming maniac. Where they fling the bag of sand and Bobby John just starts screaming, Get that bag off me! <laughs> Bobby John is quite literally the Incredible Hulk. I mean, yes. <laughs> there, is, there is no middle ground. Bobby John is either a 1 or he's a 10. Like, he has no concept of six or seven. Like, what? he doesn't know what that is. In fact, I would argue that it's like Spinal Tap, that Bobby John goes to 11. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Bobby, <laughs> yeah, Bobby John's the only one to go to 11. There's the one, he gets the point, he goes back to the front, and he starts pounding on his face to, to psych himself up. I mean, who else but Bobby John kicks their own ass as a celebration? <laughs> Oh my God! He kicks every. He kicks the. Ch- you know, he he punches the challenge props. He obviously whoops Oolong's ass, and then he ends up beating himself up. I I'm I really feel bad that I didn't put Bobby John just going crazy in challenges and on the funny one fifteen as like the top three moment because I watch it, it kills me every single time because he's he's so calm normally. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And then he just goes absolutely berserk in a challenge every time. I mean, he literally, I mean, I literally wish that he was wearing, like, cut-off purple pants. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it well, just would have been perfect. Yeah, I know Ibrahim at one point has, like, I guess they end up, like, cutting up Ibrahim's pants so it's, like, very ragged at the bottom, so it looks like Incredible Hulk pants. So, like, I hope that, I wish that Bobby John had worn those, for at least for a challenge. <laughs> and, well, you know, again, the argument that you shouldn't come back and play Survivor again because it ruins your character. Bobby John is just as crazy in De Guatemala, too, which I love about him. Well, I, I, feel, I feel like he gets even better. Yeah, he doesn't tone down at all. Bobby John gets better, but only because Bobby John doesn't change, right? Like, yeah. Bobby John in Guatemala is still Bobby John, right? Like, he's still, he's either a 1 or he's an 11, right? And he doesn't change. And in Guatemala, he's got Jamie to kind of, like, yell at, back at, and all, all sorts of things. But it's like, we just get more Bobby John. Like, Bobby John's not great at Survivor because Bobby John's not, you know, any sort of social threat. He's a workhorse and he's just an absolute crazy man in challenges. But other than that, that's just what he is. He's not really adept at the social game. He really isn't. And you could see a lot of his flaws in, in that sort of game as you, as you watch it. But it's like Bobby John's just going to be out there. He, as, as I think my wife put it, he's a guy you sort of want on your team at all times, right? Yeah. In the sense that he works hard around camp. And, I mean, he's going to give it his all in a challenge. But you don't want him as your leader by any stretch of the imagination. Can you imagine playing, like, a board game against Bobby John oh and just God. watch it? I mean, imagine Bobby John against someone super competitive like Tina in a game of checkers. Like, Bobby John would be punching the walls and shit. It'd be crazy. Shit, dude, I, I, checkers? I, I, I was s- thinking, like, shoots and ladders. Like, if he had to go down a, 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 a slide, like, I mean, would he just, like, just flip things? Like, what would happen? No, I want to I see him. We talked about Rory playing Halo before. I want to see Rory playing a Halo team with Bobby John. <laughs> 
<laughs> How about Bobby John something physical like Wee Bowling or something like that, where he's actually moving his arms? That is, that will be at least three broken televisions by the time that game is over with. <laughs> I'm Bobby sorry, John, I broke the you, television. Do you, do, do you think you could put the strap, the Wii strap on your wrist so that, uh, you know, the thing doesn't go flying? What are you talking about? Get this Wii mode off of me. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I like it. That's how I like it. <laughs> Again, so far, if there's anything you should appreciate about Palau, it's Bobby John. There's lots of other things, but Bobby John is the greatest character. Oh, I love it. <laughs> All right, so Oolong wins, and again, it's not even close. And again, this is something I was kind of forgotten about if I because I hadn't watched Palau in a while. But Oolong just kicks Karor's ass, or they kick Katie's ass, basically. Is how that should go. Right, but if you notice, you know, this is a challenge. This is a very individual challenge. It's a physical challenge, but there's no real strategy to run here. It's you got to run the course, yeah. get the flag, don't get knocked off, right? And so Oolong, they've got a lot of physical talent on that team. And they don't have a lot of brains, and they don't do a lot of thinking ahead. But with this challenge, this isn't even like physical strategy, like the sumo challenge a couple episodes come. This is just literally get to the end, get the flag, come back. Yeah, it's just be Bobby John. That's the challenge. Be Bobby John. They don't have to work together. They don't have to do anything except just run the course. And no surprise, Oolong wins this. Well, yeah, you got Bobby John, you got Stephanie, who's a female Bobby John, then you got Angie, who's kind of like the, the poor man Stephanie. So, yeah, they absolutely dominate this challenge. They crush it. Now, I mean, we even get a good shot of Willard trying to say, Katie, holy crap, do a swing right. <laughs> yes. Although, there's a great little uh, moment. I love, I love one of the best running jokes in, in uh, Palau is how James constantly says that they don't have a leader, yet he thinks he's, he himself is the leader. And there's a great shot at the end of the challenge where Jeff says, all right, you won. You won the fishing gear. And he, he throws it to Oolong. And James immediately reaches out to grab it like he's the leader, except Jeff tosses it to Stephanie instead. <laughs> it's just a great little James moment where he always assumes he's the leader. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Come on. We're doing democracy, which means I'm the leader. <laughs> yes. So what they win? They won they they all the fishing gear, right? Yeah. And again, they... this, is, this is the legacy of Rupert, ladies and gentlemen. Like Jeff's like, if you can't catch fish with this... I don't know what's going on. You can see them like they're oohing and aahing at like the tackle and the hooks, you know, and they're like, that's good. Then he busts out the Hawaiian sling, the Rupert sling. Ah, yeah. And they're all like, oh, baby. (laughs) Rupert has has left a legacy on Survivor, and one of them is Hawaiian Hawaiian sling equals massive amounts of food. Yes, and rot and death. Also that. All right, so we go back to Karor, and this is where I think they finally go and get their flint, right? Yeah, in like the worst circumstances. <laughs> yeah, it's like the the worst tide ever. They're trying to get it. They and they, they spend like hours out there. I know on some interview Ian said it looks like we were we only took like a half an hour to find the flint, but he's like we were out there for like three hours every day trying to find it. That's 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 rough too because it's not like it's you know it's not like it's like in the middle of the beach or like the jungle or something where they at least know have like a route marker to go off of like this is the the middle of the vast pacific ocean that they capsize in they could probably approximate a spot but like it's in the middle of the freaking ocean yeah it's like step 1 find it yeah. it's exactly the same place that Sean lost the spear in pearl islands in the ocean it's in the ocean all right, so yeah, they got the flint. It's a big deal, blah, blah, nothing. It doesn't really ha- affect much to the story, so I'll go past that one here. Uh, 
this is where we get the little thing where we go back to Oolong and they're celebrating getting their fishing stuff. They got a clam, I think. They got some fish. And Ashley doesn't feel like eating. She's not taking part with the rest of the tribe. And they're like, uh-oh, Ashley's not doing well. And this is really going to be the story of the rest of the episode. And Ashley's only story, to be honest. Yeah. that's. I mean, honestly, I don't want to objectify her, really. But I think the only two things she's really known for in, in Palau are this and her boobs. That would be three things. And yeah, it, I, guess, I, I, I think it's even Jeff with the confessional, and Jeff is one of these Mactor types, right? So it's not even like Jeff is, you know, uh, coming down, or, or am I wrong? I thought Jeff was a Mactor, right? He should be if he's not. Yeah, yeah. I believe so. <laughs> but but like, he's fan yeah. favorite. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> Jeff even says, you know, because Ashley doesn't want to eat the food, which, you know, hey, seafood's not for everyone, I get it, but... You know, she doesn't want to eat. She's not feeling well. But, I mean, even Jeff Brooks marks, like, you should come out to the fire and socialize, even if you don't want to. Like, again, this is the whole, at the beginning of Survivor, if everyone's doing something, you should do it, even if you don't want to. If nobody's working on the shelter, don't be the one person working on the shelter nagging people. If everyone's working on the shelter, you should, too. If everyone's by the fire and it's a big, you know, social event, go sit by the fire. Absolutely. And then this is also uh, the first glance we get, of course, in our post-Robin Amber Survivor world. We, we always have the, the possible showman stories, and we get our first one this season. Not the only one, unfortunately, but our yeah. first one this season. Jeff and Kim, one of the more forgettable uh, romance or showman's pairings, if I recall. Yeah, it doesn't really pay off, is the yeah. thing. Think back to Palau. Jeff and Kim hooking up is not the thing you remember about Palau. All right, so that's about it. I think we're going to go to the immunity challenge in episode two. This is the one where they have to learn the Morse code. And again, what's fun is that the one bit of thinking you get from Oolong where, you know, basically they get in their tree mail for the challenge. They get, you know, uh, all the letters of the alphabet in this Morse code, and they basically say, learn this. And so Oolong basically just decides to, you see them cut up the paper into equal sections so that each member of the Oolong tribe is learning a bit of the Morse code. And you're like, well, maybe that's smart that, you know, a bunch of them are are covering the sort of ground, but none of that's going to come into play. Exactly. With the way it's tied into the challenge, you only really need one tribe member to know the whole alphabet and just sort it that way. Yeah, it's kind of a producer fail if you think about it. It's definitely not the challenge that they build it up to be. Yeah, so this this challenge, uh, essentially what happens is there's a there's a footlocker with all these mess kits at the bottom of the ocean. It's sort of a take on the on the Gabriel Cave Memorial Challenge uh, <laughs> in that they have to dive down and pull on this big rope to essentially pull this heavy footlocker along the ocean. And, you know, markers will pop up as they as they go along. And then once the chest has reached them, I think they pull it like 40 feet or something. They get out the mess kits and then they're supposed to spell out a certain word with the eight mess kits that are written in Morse code. So basically, it's it's swim out, do something physical under the ocean, come back and solve just the miniest of puzzles. Yeah. So you know it, it's a it's it's a pretty standard survivor challenge, but again, very nice with the theme or the fact that you have to get a footlocker. It's got mess kits, Morse code. Again, very easy of these World War Two ish sort of themes. This mm-hmm. is not difficult, and yet it's pulled off so effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes a blowout because nobody on Oolong can do this. Yeah, well, Tom, again, he takes the Gabriel Cade role and, like, almost single-handedly wins this for Karor. I mean, I, they, Jeff comments a lot about how Kim, like, didn't go down, but I don't think a lot of people on Karor went down either just because Tom kept going down and down again. And it's also hard to have multiple people, multiple people down there because the only thing one person can really do is put their feet on the box 
and actually pull the rope. Otherwise, you're just kind of straggling in the water trying to pull on it. But yet, you could see, in a way, again, you're right. Tom does a lot of good beast moding here. So Tom does some major, major work. But you could see sort of at the start, Oolong gets to the... Because basically, they had to swim out to like a, a, a platform first where they're all just, you know, set up their base of operations. Then they dive down to this place to pull the rope and the, and the heavy footlocker along the, uh, the shore. But like Oolong reaches first because Willard is is got to run this challenge because he sat out the reward challenge, and uh, you know he's late to get there. So Oolong sort of gets first crack at the chest, and they basically take the the situation where they just send one at a time down there. And you're right, Mike. It's not like you know when you send two that two can really get their foot on that sort of pull thing. But in a way, just having the two people down there, it's even though Tom is doing a lot of beast moding, you're at least having like a slack being pulled around and you're getting a little bit more. And I think that it did sort of save on the wear and tear. Again, it was the whole Koror just had a, a second to think a little bit more. And it, I think that just that little bit helps because you could tell they were out there for a long time pulling that rope. You can tell that time was elapsing very slowly on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that, especially pulling a heavy footlocker 40 feet that's again i feel like a lot of modern survivor challenges take like maybe 20 minutes at the most uh, these these challenges of palau seem like they take at least half an hour to do mm-hmm. or more but you know again this like the like the first immunity challenge this is a stomp this isn't close yeah yep so we're going back to tribal counselor for oolong and this is where it comes down to like, again this is just it's just a parade of like Choices between forgettable characters. That's how I look at these first episodes of Oolong. Like, Ashley or Kim. That's a battle of the titans of major survivor characters. And this is where we get the great quote from James. Once again, almost every episode, he will boldly predict something that won't come true. Where James tells us, so I tell you how it's going to happen. Kim is gone. Oh, yeah, for sure. So anyway, Ashley gets voted out. Yeah. And it's strange just because, I mean, I think, again, we talked about there's no cohesiveness in Oolong. And this is... Probably the first time ever in Survivor that there's a tribe of eight people and there is clearly a 4-4 divide. Like, people were talking about the possibility of a tie vote in episode two. That is insane. Yeah. And it's insane because, you know, in more modern Survivors, what's nice is that people realize that, like, there's a power structure. They're trying to get in with alliances. I almost feel like on Oolong, for the most part, they're not even thinking about alliances or endgame. They're just thinking about who they want to vote out of the tribe. Yeah. You know, and like they're openly talking about it. Like the conversations between Stephanie and Bobby John in some of these early episodes, they're just farcical because they're in the water and they're just like, I think I'm going to vote for this person. Bobby John's like, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to vote for this other person. (laughs) And it's like clearly Stephanie and Bobby John like each other. Or, or respect to each other enough, you know, to the point where they're talking openly and they're not, I don't ever get the feeling that like Stephanie is trying to lead one power alliance and Bobby John's trying to lead another power alliance and they're trying to, you know, get their ducks in a row or anything like that. They're just literally talking. And what's fun is that usually when people talk, you know, and Stephanie would be like, well, I really want to vote out Kim because I want to break up the Jeff and Kim alliance because they seem to be getting close. And Bobby John's like, well, I want to get rid of Ashley because she's sick and she's not doing anything. Like, usually you can see them, like, working together and coming to a consensus, but it was just like, Stephanie's like, I want to vote for Kim. And Bobby John's like, well, I'm going to vote for Ashley. Well, I want to vote for Kim, but I want to vote for Ashley. It's like, my God, come together. (laughs) 
it's it's interesting when you see that because Stephanie is apparently a pretty big Survivor fan. Like, you come later down the road, we'll get to episode six or so where she does the Pringles Survivor trivia, and she knows all the Survivor trivia. Like, Stephanie's not some rookie at this game. She knows what's going on. So it's kind of interesting that she doesn't push the strategy in that direction. I wonder if she doesn't or she can't. Like, it, it, it feels like corralling Bobby John almost could be an impossible task. You know, but I mean, Bobby John does learn his lesson. He does, you know, especially in Guatemala, he does seem like he can stick somewhat to an alliance. But it's just like no one has an alliance in in Oolong and no one's working toward one. It's just they're just all over the map. It's just crazy. I think what's going on is there's a bunch of little final uh, two person alliances. That's kind of what I get the sense. And only because later down the road, it seems like Stephanie and James are super close. And you got Ibrahim and Bobby John are super close. And you got Jeff and Kim. I think it's just a bunch of little two-person things. Yeah. It could be. That's just me trying to read between the lines. No, I've, no one knows this. No, one's ever, no one has any idea. There's no backstory behind any of this. Yeah. I mean, I, you could tell me anything, and I wouldn't be necessarily surprised. <laughs> but at the same point, that's what's so messed up about this Oolong tribe. And that's really the problem. It's not, not like Oolong needs a leader, but it's like they can't, as Mike said, come to a consensus. And not even that, but it just seems like there's not even like – big power alliances trying to, you know, gain control over this tribe. They're just like, they just are just these ragtag bunch of small individuals or groups, and then they have to go to tribal council and are like, well, who do we vote for? Well, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's literally just a tribe of everyone with the Sandra motto, which again works in an individual game, but when you have eight people with the as long as it ain't me strategy, that's not going to lead to a good tribe. Yeah, yeah, they, they, very short-term victories they're going for, not long-term. All right, so yeah, we lost, we lose Ashley, no one really notices, and then we have, the only thing that comes out at the end of Tribal Council here is that Jeff highlights the, uh, or probes highlights the Jeff and Kim romance, which they were not prepared for, and they're openly bitter about it the next day at Tribal Council that Jeff was being an ass to them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think this is the first time, you know, out uh, on, on the show, we've obviously heard about, you know, Pagong instances uh, from other people, but this is the first time that they've actively shown on the show that people were, like, speaking out against Jeff Probst, aside from Sue, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and, and rightfully so, because, you know, Sue was kind of assaulted. But, like, you know, it, yeah, they, they, they speak out about it, but, like, you know, Jeff, what's funny is that, again, this is the, leg, you know, the Hawaiian sling is the legacy of Rupert. Like, now we're seeing the legacy of, of, of Boss and Rob Amber, right? Where, like, Jeff and Kim are getting close, and you even see Angie in a, in a confessional where she's like, a two-person alliance, that's pretty powerful. You know, and she's not talking about Vanuatu. She's talking about Survivor All-Stars. And it's like they're looking at this. And what's funny is that then you look at – they go to Tribal Council and Jeff Probst is grilling. I'm like, oh, there's an attraction between you two. And, you know, and they're like, well, yeah, we're keeping each other warm at night. But, but it's not like an alliance or anything. Yeah. And Jeff Probst is like, are you freaking kidding me? And they're like, no, dude, we're not – we didn't even it didn't even cross our mind and they get really defensive. But what's funny is given the track record of Oolong, I'm like, I actually believe Jeff when he says that. Yeah. Like, I think Jeff and Kim would probably vote together on things normally and, you know, talk about things. But like, I don't think they're trying to, you know, sneakily come up with this Boston Rob Amber thing. Like when they're like, we haven't really talked strategy. I'm like, I believe you. I believe you haven't talked strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Although we get a, a great quote here again. Again, I kind of forgot that Jeff and Kim was such a major storyline at the start of Palau, but it really is. And you got James here talking about, I'll be keeping an eye on him. Mm-hmm. Next week, they'll be sucking face and stuff. I got ears like a bat. 
And then she he ends with like, "Oh yeah, Kim, she's a woman. All she has she has for revenge is her sexuality. Sexuality, <laughs> sexuality. Oh, yes. I love the way that se- sexuality." <laughs> All right, so we go back over. That's that's the big storyline on Oolong that uh, they have a romance and people are trying to break it up. Go back over to Karor, and the big gripe that everyone has is that because they don't they don't lose any challenges, they can't get rid of people they're annoyed by. And this is where we get back into the uh, Karen versus Katie thing. God, you guys, we just win too much. This 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 is literally a first world problem on Survivor. <laughs> It sucks, but this is what leads to, you know, in, in later seasons especially. But, I mean, it even happened with Da Drake in, uh, in, in Survivor Pearl Island, so even beforehand. It's just the fact where sometimes if you feel like you just have too much, you know, too many people and you want to get rid of one, then people start thinking about throwing challenges. Karor never really gets to that point, but here they're just like, you know what, it just sucks because no one goes home. Yeah, and I think uh, this, this scene in particular shows the fatal flaw of Karen which is that Karen doesn't really have any sort of social conscience as to what she should and shouldn't say to people. Um, for instance, Karen talks about, as alluded to before, that Katie is very tart. And rather than sort of keeping that to herself or, I don't know, maybe talking to a close ally about it, she decides to pull Katie aside and directly tell her every problem that she has with her. <laughs> That's also tart. <laughs> tart she also, the, the weird thing is that Karen specifies this incident where I guess she threw a stick in the fire, and Katie told her not to throw the stick in the fire. And let's, this is also weird because this is also not the first time in this, in this season where Karen brings up the example of throwing a stick in a fire. <laughs> so clearly there was something happened where Karen threw a stick into a fire that is a traumatizing moment in her life. So Karen's like Butch. They're trying to head her off before she burns down everything. Exactly. Maybe. <laughs> now, do, 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 do you think that Karen believes in herself? Oh, God, no. Karen would be the... I could actually see Karen as, like, a principal, but as, like, the Trunchbull from Matilda, as, like, the worst school principal ever. I don't see Karen swinging kids by their hair and, like, throwing them, like, the hammer throw, though. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Trunchbull reference. But, like, I... Yeah, Karen, I mean, she. you're right, though, Mike. She does bring the stick in the fire, because she talks about it with Tom, like, the fact that everyone's worshipping Tom, right? And so, it's, yeah. you know... You know, everyone goes to Tom for things like, oh, Tom, can I throw this stick in the fire? Oh, it's like, I don't need to go to Tom to throw a stick in the fire. And then she talks about it with Katie, like, I threw a stick in the fire and you criticized it. Like, oh, you shouldn't have thrown it. Like, Come on, Katie, I'm a grown person. I can do what I want. And then, uh, so are we saying that Ozzy in Micronesia made a Karen reference when he talked about Eliza throwing the stick in the fire? That's right. <laughs> it's meta. Well, this is where Karen comes up with the quote that I used earlier, where you're always on me. Get off me. And I love that Katie's just sitting there. She's like, what the hell, dude? Yeah, she's like laughing. She's like, I didn't even know why Karen was mad, but she was like furious. So Katie's just laughing. Yeah, like I, again, blunt Katie in the in confessionals where she's like, I was just sitting there. And then Karen just comes and says, do you have a problem with me? <laughs> <laughs> and, then uh, she, those... and then she does that like shrug, you know, like just the what? You know what I mean? And like, you know, Katie has a problem with Karen, but Karen's but Katie's just like, dude, why are you bringing this to me? <laughs> Though to be fair, uh, Katie has her sort of non-filter moment later when Karen sort of comes back to her to kind of smooth things over. And Katie says like, oh, no, there wasn't animosity before, but there is now. (laughs) Yes. One thing you guys you mentioned earlier, Mike, was the the thing where first world problems on Survivor where you're you're too much you're winning too much and you can't get rid of people and you start doing crazy things. 
One of the things I hear a criticism of Palau over the years is that it's too predictable. You always knew Tom was going to win. It's so obvious. But I would argue it wasn't that obvious at the time because there's a lot of underdog oolong edit kind of going on, especially around Stephanie. And just from a historical perspective, you have to think back to Rotu, who never lost. They got too cocky. They threw the whole game away because they just were so cocky that they were never losing. And then uh, Drake, like you said earlier, which almost the same thing happened. People forget that, I mean, Morgan came back and tied it up almost. That was a, that was a, they almost threw away a handy, handy win as well. So it really wasn't that obvious from the edit that the Carors were going to ro- run it all the way to the end because there's a little hints here, like they're having the same issues that Rotu and Drake had, that it was just, they were so successful they weren't able to play Survivor socially like the, they would like to. Yeah. The season is, and that's why I feel like the season suffers somewhat on a rewatch, just because you just know that Karor is going to win the whole time. But I mean, you can sit back and enjoy the ride. But at the time, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like that's what I was thinking when I was watching the show was, mm-hmm. you know, I was rooting for Oolong and rooting for Stephanie and, and stuff like that because that's, you know, how, you know, I, I watched the show. But at the same time, you just, you had to, at this point, we've had nine seasons of Survivor. And we've seen stuff like this before. We've seen dominant tribes before. And we've seen tribes get out to like a 2-0 lead, especially in numbers. But, I mean, you just sat there and said, Oolong has to win one. Yeah. They have to win one. And then, like I said, when they weren't winning one, I was expecting a tribal shuffle at some point. You're like, this can't continue, can it? Yeah. And there's hints all along the way that Tom is going to fall, especially later when you have Greg and Kobe teaming up and they're going to take Tom out when they get down to seven and stuff. Like, it's not as obvious at first glimpse that then the season would be on a rewatch. And again, like you said, that's absolutely correct, that this season suffers a little on rewatch because the editors tried really hard to keep it suspenseful the first yeah. time around. But they can't, you, that doesn't work the second time. And let's also remember that, like, looking at the post-Hunter vote survivor world where, like, if just because you were a leader on a tribe doesn't mean that you were particularly safe. And looking at the, the past few winners, uh, you had, you know, Chris wasn't necessarily seen as a leader, at least from an editing perspective, that was more Sarge, who didn't win. Boston Rob was the leader of Shapira. He didn't win. You have Rupert and Andrew Savage. They didn't win. So for a long time throughout the past few seasons, the leader of the tribe was not the person who won. So I think some fans were definitely expecting Tom to go in like a, a mid-jury blindside. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was very, again, one of the things why I said that Palau is absolutely a unique season that you can't confuse with any other season especially from that era because the alpha guy did go to the end and that's so rare in that era of survivor right i think people at that point are questioning like can an alpha male alpha his tribe and yet you know win the game and be some liked force for fun in the world and the answer is well tom did it yeah happened once (laughs) all right so we're up to the reward challenge in episode three this is the one that jay talked about earlier where the only budget for this one was a, a, uh, inner, a life raft or life ring where it popped up. Two people go out and fight over it and try to drag it back to the start. Yep. Yeah. And this is, this is another curb stomping one, except it's, uh, it's Oolong that does the curb stomping for <laughs> once in. And this is also the first, the first challenge, the second challenge that they'll win. And it's the, the, the challenge that they'll win for, for quite a while. Yeah. yeah. You know, again, it sort of paints that whole, like, maybe it's sort of even at the beginning, because even though Karora has won the immunity challenge, Oolong takes the first two reward challenges. They took the one in the previous episode. They're going to take this one. But again, even though Jeff at the end says, you guys showed a lot of teamwork, I question that. <laughs> again, this is a lot, for, for, for the most part, this is, again, an, a thing where it's like individual. Go get something. Go, get, go bring it back. 
Yeah. You know, but, you know, Jeff, this is like a super physical adversarial challenge with the life ring where Jeff releases the life ring. It's in the middle of the water. And basically uh, the first two heats, uh, it was just a one on one battle. Basically one ring, bring the ring back to the life ring back to your platform. And you have to touch the ring and touch the platform at the same time. But there's only one ring. There's two of you. So outside of hitting each other and using your feet as weapons, you could do whatever you want to make sure that you got the ring to your platform. So dunking and splashing and, you know, sort of the odd occasional shoving and that sort of, you know, underwater wrestling is allowed. And so it's a super physical challenge. And to go along with that, Jay, is something really interesting I noticed in this challenge. Just it's one of these things that jumps out when you look at how much Jeff Probst has changed over the years in his view towards what Survivor is. I love his little ex- his disclaimer here yes. at the start of this challenge. Yes. Yeah, he goes, yeah. He goes, keep in mind, this is ultimately a social game. And remember that past actions can hurt you. Yes. It's interesting. He would never say that in a later season. Yeah, now he's just like, you guys need to go in there and murder each other. Exactly. You're not even trying. Dig deep. He Big moves. You. But yeah, he does say that. He does say, you know, you can do whatever you want to win. Just bear in mind, this is a social game. You're like, holy shit, Jeff Probst, awesome moment. Yeah, and that's absolutely correct. It is a social game, so be careful what you do to people, which, again, goes right back to the essence of Survivor we've been saying since day one. Just don't be a dick to people, and you you can win, maybe. So the first, and what, what was funny is I was watching this the other day, and my wife was watching this challenge with me, and it was great because the first ring goes, and the first, the first heat is Tom versus uh, Jeff, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, alpha male, oolong, alpha male, Karor, right? Going in there, and... Uh, What's funny is that Tom, Jeff basically sits back and lets Tom go to the ring. So Tom gets to the ring and then they sort of meet up sort of halfway between both. And what's funny is that my wife starts the sentence of, why don't you just jump into the ring? And as she's saying the sentence, Tom jumps and basically puts the ring around his waist. And then just as he says that, I say, yeah, but if he's in the ring, you just pull him to your thing. And then Jeff just starts pulling Tom to the – it was just really funny because she, you know, she said, why doesn't Tom do this? And he doesn't. I was like, yeah, but you can counter it with this. And then Jeff just starts pulling Tom toward the Oolong platform. Well, it's – a lot of people, when they think of Palau, they just remember Tom dominating everything. It's kind of jarring to see Tom lose to a minor character in a physical challenge. I kind of liken this to Coach beating Colby in that in that uh, Heroes versus Villains first oh, episode God, one challenge. Like, yeah, yeah, so it's like everyone just remembers Tom dominating everything. And if you haven't watched Palau in a while, it's a little disconcerting when you watch Tom get completely owned by a minor character you don't even remember as being on the season. Yeah, it's a, he also doesn't benefit from the fact that he's the first to go. So like clearly he tries something and it doesn't work, but at least everyone else is looking like, okay, I'm not going to do what Tom does. Yes, that's a good way to approach Survivor. Don't do what Tom does. <laughs> Work out for you. <laughs> so anyway, round two, here we go. Jen, always the second best female athlete where she has to go up against Stephanie. Yes. And, and this Steph- is where oh, Probes has one of his perv moments where it's a good old cat fashion cat fight. Yeah, what the hell? Jeff Probes, what the heck moment? <laughs> Jeff Probes perv moment. Yeah. yeah. Like, wait, well, you know. Surprise, surprise. Jeff Probst, a little sexist. Who knew? (laughs) What? 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 (laughs) All right. So, yeah. So, Stephanie wins handily. uh, Jeff wins handily. And now we have Oolong up 2-0. And now we have the final one, which is, of course, a wonderful uh, moment for Bobby John to go apeshit and turn into the Hulk again. Yeah, and it's what's what's funny is like it's Bobby John and Angie, and Angie has proved herself in, in the in the previous reward challenge from from the last episode against 
Janu. <laughs> what, was Karen busy? Yeah. <laughs> it was Greg and Janu, right? And it was just so, so basically it's Bobby John and Angie against Greg. Yeah, Greg yeah. and a floating stick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and what's great is that, you know, they said this thing, and like, you know, they talk about teamwork, and I guess, you know, this is this is just very basic teamwork where like Bobby John gets the life ring. And then Angie just dunks Janu, and, you know, that's it. Janu's that's done. It. Like, you know, she dunks Janu once, and she's like, well, I'm out. I tried. So, I tried. And then, and then she just starts, you know, dunking Greg and hanging on Greg. And, you know, basically all Angie does is just be a disruptive force. And then Bobby John just, you know, wrestles his way to the platform. And they're like, nice teamwork. And I'm like, well, Angie just took Janu out of the fight real quick. And then it's just a matter of, you know, two on one, right? You left out the part that Bobby John was roaring the entire time. <laughs> and, you know, you always love the Bobby John roar at the end. Like, it's not like a Rupert roar, but, like, once they win, you know, then he's just – his head's back and his mouth's open and his eyes are closed and he's just roaring and shaking and – what's going on there? He's like a great white shark eating. The eyes roll back into the head and the jaws yeah. get exposed. <laughs> So Oolong wins uh, wins something that we obviously don't see a lot, on a lot of days in Modern Survivor in terms of a reward. They win a sewing kit. It's perfect. Ooh, ooh, you get the polite golf clap when the sewing kit comes <laughs> out. Like, ooh, that's 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 useful. It's not something I'm going to scream about, but yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, and they're, and they're able, to be fair, they are able to use it to fashion some, like, Aramaic-looking robes that they wear for the rest of the season. <laughs> it's like yes. toga. Yeah, like James wears a toga. Bobby John wears, like, a Jesus-like shawl. There's a great transition at the end of this challenge where Bobby John's screaming, you know, just doing Bobby John things. They cut back to camp, and now he's giving his one of his gentleman confessionals. He was like, it was so great that we won. <laughs> it was real nice. We got the sewing equipment. We, yeah. can, uh, we, we can get some nice clothes up in here. <laughs> Bobby John's the greatest. That's, that's, so, that's, that's, that's so nice. <laughs> Although, you know, he showed all the fabric, but you're right, Mike. Like, I think, is that just like basic muslin? That they yeah, had, like, you know, I, like, like I think they they didn't even need to sew it. I think they just like cut a hole in the fabric, and Bobby John stuck his head through it. And he's like, "This will be mine." Yeah, but like they just used like a basic muslin fabric, you know, and it's uh, the, like probably a little sturdier. But it's like, what else? Did they just give them all silk or something? It's like donuts with this flimsy ass fabric, or you know, whatever. It's a poncho, one size fits all. Yeah, and then they just took it and they just made these ponchos or these very very loosely cut things like i feel like on survivor pearl islands they had some people that knew how to sew oh yeah, we do we, we do get an ibrahim commercial or uh, confessional this where ibrahim's like we want a sewing equipment i can't sew <laughs> well said ibrahim thank you good thank ibrahim. you for thank your you. <laughs> that was good you make the words come to life off the page <laughs> yeah though bobby john actually is pretty uh he's pretty efficient with the sewing kit and that he's able to use the the thread and some of the needles to actually fish with it. Yeah. He's just like, screw the sewing. I'm just going to fish. And then we get the, uh, the first instance of the theme where we've seen Bobby John go ape shit in the challenges. And also apparently Bobby John goes ape shit at camp. <laughs> yeah. Where this, this is where he's throwing the stick up in the air to knock the coconut down. No, I think that's the next. Oh yeah. This, oh yeah. I was gonna say the next episode is when I think when he chops down the tree and he tries to like beast mode, carry it by himself and he can't. <laughs> <laughs> all right well we also right. get we also get the theme and it starts it starts here uh you know in, in this season but it, it's just the fact that like we see that bobby john is just this absolute camp workhorse and that some of that's got to come into the fact because you also have to remember that jolanda on the on the first day when she picked the tribe isn't bobby john her first pick 
I believe yes. so. Yes. Bobby John is the first pick. And I think part of it is because Bobby John seems very nice and all that sort of stuff. But also, they, when they were probably working on that shelter, you know, Bobby John, as we see, he, again, 1 or 11, right? So when he's working, he's just working and, like, throwing his entire body into everything. And you see various shots of him with just large stumps, like, you know, trying to shake down coconuts from trees and stuff like that. And we start to get this theme of Kim watches other people work and says, wow, they work a lot. Yes, yeah. and Bobby John gets annoyed by her. Yes. And, and actually, Bobby, he's annoyed by everybody, actually, if I he's recall. He's annoyed by everyone because he says they're all lazy. But you get a lot of, in general, Oolong is lazy, but Kim is especially lazy. Yes. Even yeah, by Oolong standards. Not only is Kim lazy, Kim is lazy and thinks she's better than everyone on her tribe. <laughs> and, and, she, and, and Kim sort of, what's funny is that you, you get this impression, but that Kim gives a confessional where she's like, I'm not working and I'm better than everyone. <laughs> yes. I'm the smart one. I'm the smart one because I'm not working. <laughs> That's the John Robert approach. <laughs> All right, so let's cut over to uh, Karora. As Oolong is, is working and or not working, we go over to Karora where Karora is going to go find the most venomous animal they can find and try to prov- provoke it like the, they're the uh, crocodile hunter. Oh, <laughs> oh now that there is a little mite. Yeah, look at him. He's really mad now. I'm going to poke him with a stick. <laughs> Which is what they do. Which is what they do. <laughs> yes. There's a big, long confessional. They go out. It's uh, Ian, Tom, and Greg, I believe. And they have the, these venomous sea snakes, snakes these crates, these, uh, the most venomous sea snake in the world. There's a bunch. We're going to go find some and kill them. And what's great is that, I mean, they have a decent plan, right? I mean, their plan is, is I mean, it's, it's caveman strategy, right? It was just pin it down, chop the head off, right? You know, what can go wrong? But it's like, you just see the three guys are like awkwardly positioned like in this cove and they've just got these like makeshift sticks in this machete and I'm like, like, who thought this is great? Like, oh, no problem. We totally won't get bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom is like, well, Ian's standing in the front so he'll get bit. I do like when Tom encourages Ian to give it, give it the old Harry Carey stroke with, yeah. the, with the machete. <laughs> just walk up there and poke it, see what happens. Imagine Harry Carey being like, hey, did you ever poke a pe- poisonous snake with a machete? Hey! <laughs> hey there, Cubs win! <laughs> wow, from the Crocodile Hunter right to Harry Carey. Nice work. We're, run- we're running the gamut this episode. Yes. I like Make how you went the other Harry Carey direction. That was good. Yes. Well, that's the way that Tom says it. Yeah. You the old Harry Carey. All right, so yeah, so they, they kill the snake, they cut the head off, and of course Ian, the dolphin trainer slash animal lover, is like, oh, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. He's like uh, in A Fish Called Wando when Otto has to apologize and he's still kicking, he's kick, still kicking him. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So yeah, Ian feels bad, but then of course they, kick, they kill one, they're like, well, there's a couple other here, we'll just get those as well. So they eventually go out and stupidly catch three snakes. Which they do a good job of, and they bring them back to camp, and then they hang them over a vine, and then their blood's dripping in the water, and this attracts sharks. Yes. I love that their first instinct isn't, hey, let's take the, the snakes away from the, uh, the water. Their first instinct is, let's upgrade like it's a carnival prize. Let's trade two smalls for a large. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, oh, no, let's... <laughs> it's a little bit of like an oolong-esque decision for them to be like, well, we just hunted down those ven- venomous snakes and took in three of them that we could have now. Or we could throw them into the water for this prospect of having a shark. <laughs> yes. Which they don't get right away. But, you know, stick around, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen. This will also be a theme for future episodes. Yeah. PETA loved this season, by the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> Imagine if Scoopin was on this season. 
I heard he was, but he got cut at the last minute. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Inside joke. He, he was not considered for Palau. Just don't. That was a joke. All right. Uh, so, yeah. So we had that great char- little character scene. Again, nothing to do with strategy. Just pure character stuff. That's a lot of fun. And now we get go back to Oolong. And, uh-oh, Jeff's walking along at night. And he hurts his ankle on a coconut. No, fan favorite Jeff Wilson. <laughs> um, Whatever I, shall we do? So, so I'm, I, uh, in referring that, I'm just making a quick reference because this is probably the longest we'll talk about Jeff Wilson besides the end. So in an article in People Magazine, I believe like right before Survivor Micronesia, they asked Jeff like, okay, so you're doing fans versus favorites. Who are some like fan favorites that you want to bring back? And he mentioned, you know, I think he mentioned Sari and Yao Man. And he's like, oh yeah, and then there's some people like, you know, Jeff Wilson from Palau. <laughs> So I just imagine Survivor fans versus favorites. You know, it was it was an arguably weird cast to begin with, but then add in Jeff Wilson, the, I don't know, like 16th place person from Survivor Palau as a fan favorite. So what uh, happened? So they wouldn't let him use Jeff Wilson, so he used Amanda instead? Yeah, exactly. Amanda was the substitute for Jeff Wilson. Amanda was the substitute for Jeff Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so anyway, yeah, Jeff... So, I mean, we're kind of making fun of it, but this really is kind of a game changer for Oolong once Jeff's ankle goes out because they weren't doing so well in the mental challenges or the strategy stuff, but they were kicking ass in the physical challenges. And now without Jeff, all of a sudden they're not going to do that anymore. Right. And as we've seen, you know, we, we talk about, you know, let's again, let's go back to Austin in Pearl Islands, right? Like Austin was gym rat. You know, he had you know, the, the nice gym body and stuff like that. And, and Austin did do strong feats and some challenges, but he also would just kind of give out on a whim, you know, like I'm done too much. And, uh, you know, some of these players on Oolong sort of have that give out mentality. Like, you know, Ibrahim sometimes on challenges would sort of, you know, give out a little bit early. Jeff, it seems like, you know, even though he had the gym rat body, you know, he had a little bit of staying power. So the fact that it's Jeff that goes down, this is a blow. This is a blow for Oolong. Well, yeah, especially down the road. There's some challenges that become very close down the road, like the sumo challenge. Like when you have James against Kobe. Just imagine if you had Jeff in there against Kobe. It's a lot more, cha- it's a lot more better chance that Oolong could have won. It's a lot better chance. And, uh, you know, but this is the thing. This is, this is, it, it's always very funny because I, I don't disagree. Like Jeff basically says, well, he rolled, you know, so the story that we're glossing over, Jeff rolls his ankle in the middle of the night. He was basically going to pee somewhere. And as he's walking down the beach, there was some coconut shell that he just steps on wrong and he rolls his ankle and he heard a pop. And so he probably broke his ankle. Probably that happened. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying he's downplaying it, but you know, he's just like, I rolled my ankle. It's going to take three weeks to recover. Oh, yeah. I, know, yeah. I know my body. And there's no footage of it. We don't see it. We don't see any of it. He just has the swollen ankle. And, you know, we, we get the interview where, where he's in the middle of the night talking about it. And he's like, well, I'm just going to keep it elevated and keep the fluids out of it. And we'll just see if I'm a new man in the morning. And then we see him in the morning and he's hobbling super badly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that raises a good point. How much is he just being a puss? Yeah, and it also raises an interesting question because I think it's the first time. I mean, we saw a little bit with Jenna Maraska, but I feel like it's the first time since, since Shauna from Amazon that we really get the situation where one person is essentially telling the tribe, like, listen, I, my head's not in the game. Get, get rid of me. And we'll talk about this later in the episode, but it's interesting to see how the tribe deals with that decision. And obviously uh, the, the Jab- uh, Jabiru tribe dealt with it a lot differently than Oolong did, and we kind of see the results as, a, as, a, as a, the different results. Yep, yep. All right, so here we go to the challenge, a very famous uh, challenge in Survivor history, one they have repeated 
several times. How many times have you done this? Like three, I guess. Three. Depends, depends on when anybody's listening to this. I'm sure they'll use it again. But yeah, this is one the producers love to go back to. And this is, they'd be number one on the top of my list of challenges I don't ever want to be a part of. Ah, uh, no. It's like, seems like the worst resistance training ever. <laughs> this is the worst, but I got I to tell you, I love this challenge. And I especially love it in this setup in Palau, just where they had it and just everything like that. But to me, this is the epitome of a survivor challenge. This is a, this is just good. I just can't find a lot of fault with this. Yeah, this is if you guys aren't aware, this is the one where they have to walk in an oval and they have to carry the bags of sand. And basically, whoever catches the other tribe first wins immunity. And if you can't carry the bag of sand, you have to unclip yourself and give it to somebody else. So basically, it ends up with all the big, strong guys competing at the end of the challenge to see who can just walk the longest and has the most endurance. Although there's an asterisk in Palau where it's all the strong guys and Stephanie. Yeah. Yeah. So so basically... You know, they start out each with 20, bag, 20 pounds of, 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 of weight on them. When the challenge starts, Jeff drops out almost immediately because he's got the broken ankle, right? And what makes it hard and what I love about this challenge, especially in Palau, and they do it in other seasons too, but, you know, you do this challenge in the middle of the water. I grew up in Southern California, and for a lot of my select soccer teams that I was on, that would be some of the training was that sometimes you would have a practice and the practice would be at the beach. And you're thinking, awesome, you have a practice at the beach. You know, you could uh, you know, play sand, soccer in the sand and, you know, it's a lot more fun. And, 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 and it was. But a lot of times the coach would just say, all right, everybody in the water. So you'd all just go out in the water and say, get out to about waist deep. And you're like, that's cool. And he's like, all right, now run to the pier and back. <laughs> and it's yeah. like running to the pier. The pier is quite a distance away there, you know, in the Santa Monica Pier. But like. Running to the pier and back in like waist deep in water, that is ridiculously hard and impossible. So like they're not only running in a circle with weight on their backs, they're running through water. And of course, they're pointing out that it's like incredibly hot that day, too. Yeah. So it's like super hot. They have to like trudge through water. And what's fun about this challenge setup is that, you know, there's a shallow sort of a, a more shallow end and there was a more deep end. And what you can start to see. And first of all, this is like. This is a challenge made for Tom Westman, right? Where yeah. it's like he is a firefighter. Like they are trained to carry heavy loads and to, you know, move quickly with them, you know, and, and over in over long distances with them. So it's like, you know, Tom, carry some weight on your back and go a long t- time. Okay, this is what I'm trained for. Yep. Yeah, and it's interesting. And they point out later that like, again, for another immunity challenge, even though I think it ends up being Tom, Ian, and Greg I yeah, because Kobe ends up dropping out. I think Tom, again, really carries the tribe in this challenge just because not only is he able to sustain his own weight, but he's able to really whoop the other guys into shape and really, like, he's uh, he's the one to really, when they, like, round the bend, he's like, come on, let's go, and it gives them, like, occasional spurts of energy, whereas, like, I feel like Oolong trudges around for the longest time, and even though Ibrahim's in the lead, nobody's really saying, like, okay, guys, let's go, let's go. Right, so Jeff backs out almost immediately, and then immediately kind of, you know, Angie sort of backs out on Oolong, and then Jen and Karen, I mean, Karen just, ugh, I don't know if she can get a full lap in, but, you know, <laughs> they they drop out. So really, sort of, for the longest time on Oolong, it's Ibrahim, Steph, James, uh, Bobby, John. Bobby John, right? And Bobby John's taking most of the weight on himself. And then uh, on on Karor, it basically ends up with Kobe, uh, Greg, Tom, and Ian. So it's kind of like this battle, and then Ibrahim steps out after a while, and then Kobe steps out after a while. You know, but so it's basically what Bobby, John, James, and Steph. Yeah, and against... again, this this is where the legend of Stephanie kind of starts. Yep, 
because Stephanie is in this. She's and and Stephanie for for the credit. I mean, Oolong for the most part, they the the three that stay, uh, Jeff and and Bobby John and, and Stephanie. It's not like they're necessarily doing anything wrong. It's just the fact that Karor, you know, Tom is leading them through it. He's talking them through it, and you can hear him talk some strategy, like you know, sprint when they're in the shallows, right? So when they get to the shallow part, they do a burst of energy, and then they kind of trudge through the longer parts. And you know, you can hear Tom just sort of cadencing things out as as mike suggested like tom is you know not only is he taking a whole bunch of the weight from the people that dropped out but he is sort of coaching you can hear him actively coaching Karor through it not just talking or or whatnot but he's sort of keeping the spirits up and you know they they eventually just kind of make up more and more ground on oolong and i think oolong just sort of realizes that they're going to get caught yeah Yeah. there's really no like and you can probably tell that they're exhausted again this is another extremely long challenge you can just tell at the end like I think Stephanie's like the catching up guys, and everyone's like, "Uh, oh, <laughs> <About> okay." <time. laughs> Bobby John tries like a little sprint at the end, but it doesn't work, and yeah. they, they tackle them. <laughs> you could even hear like you know, uh, Tom and Ian. Basically, like Tom's like, "Oh, they went to the shallows, and they're not sprinting. We got them." You know what I mean? And you could, you could, you could hear stuff like that. And and this is one where you know I was criticizing uh, in Vanuatu the shuffleboard by saying that's an extremely boring challenge, and like, yeah, but with the music and the way they shot it. It seems more exciting, you know. It, it makes for good TV. This is probably the same thing. We're like probably in practice. This is super boring to watch, but just the way the music has it, and the way they can pace it, and the way they can shoot it, it just makes it. It's just a fun, good challenge. I always welcome when they bring this challenge back. It's always a good one. Yep. And at the end, I think this is the first time we see the Karor roar. Their little celebration where they hold up their claws and roar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the first time you see it with Ian, sort of, you know. Finishing it off by doing the nice run and canter over to tag the the beleaguered oolongs, and Karor wins their third immunity in a row. Yep, and that's going to be just about it for Jeff. Jeff, we lose. Uh, Oolong loses their third immunity challenge in a row. They get back home, and Jeff is like, "Vote me out." And they're like, "What?" And that's, but that's about it. That's they go with it and again. It's like uh, if it's the name's not me, I don't care who it is. So they vote out Jeff. Well, yeah, that, there's well, that, but at the same time. You know, Jeff brings everyone back at Tribal Council or or back after the challenge and just says, hey, guys, we all tried our best. Also, vote me out because my ankle is going to improve in four years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've already diagnosed it. Yeah, I did the x-rays. I've already diagnosed it. I just know my body. It's just not going to heal for like ever. And what's great is that Jeff pulls them all together and says, vote me out. And then they still can't freaking decide. Yeah. I, specifically, Bobby John uh, seems to be helming, still getting rid of Kim. And there's actually a really funny scene where so he's convincing Angie in the middle of the jungle to vote out Kim. And then uh, it cuts to a shot of Jeff showing off to Kim that he can cut a coconut in half with basically one stroke of the machete. And Bobby John like stops Angie in the middle of the jungle and whispers her like, look at that. Look at that. You see that? See that? See what he's doing? That's why we got to keep him. Yeah, he makes a good point. I mean, the, I don't know if that says much about Jeff. It really speaks more to how worthless Kim is, that Jeff is completely hopeless, yet there's still a reason to get rid of somebody else. Yeah, there's that. You know, but it, what's funny is they do raise points where they're like, yeah, Jeff, Jeff wants to go home and Jeff has a busted ankle, but Jeff on a busted ankle is just as good as Kim. Yeah. yeah. And, and and you get that, but, like, it still just shows for the helplessness of Oolong. Like, we could talk about the fact is, do you grant Jeff's wish? Because Jeff's like, yeah, vote me out because I can't go anymore and I'm done and it's okay. But at the same time, like, they still are just like, well, we don't know what to do. <laughs> and, yeah, so even when somebody is telling them, do this, 
do this right now. They're like, uh, I don't know. And again, you just see like Stephanie have con- like Angie just have conversation with with Bobby John, and you don't even get the feeling they're like on opposite, you know, power positions or anything. It's just like, well, I'm gonna vote for Jeff because he told me to vote for Jeff, Bobby John. Oh, really? That's cool. I'm going to vote for Kim. And you're like, it just, there's no, they just are so open. They just are just all over the place. It's just freaking pathetic. And again, it's Jeff's vote. So I guess that sort of makes sense because Jeff doesn't want to vote for Kim. But like, this is the second vote in a row. Like when you go back to the, um, to the Ashley vote before, Ibrahim votes for Kim. You know, and Bobby John votes for Ashley. Like, and, and doesn't someone doesn't James get a vote or something or James gets a vote this um, well Ashley votes for James I Ashley believe. votes for James and then Jeff votes for James in this one so like the person voted out is throwing their vote in a completely other direction like they're just all over the place yep the tribe of individuals yeah and they just never go but but ultimately uh, they decide to vote Jeff out so you know I hope your ankles healed Jeff <laughs> Yeah, and to me, this was really the dagger in the heart for Oolong. They're never going to come back after losing Jeff this early. Mm-hmm. And it, as, as bears out in the episodes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so episode four. We're going to episode four. And this one starts with James giving a wonderful, inspirational speech around Camp Oolong where we are not going to tribal council again. I'm going to stomp anyone's ass who lags. And Stephanie's like, that's not a very nice way to do it. Why do you motivate them instead? <laughs> It's just a great little exchange between two characters there. Yeah, yes. and then you, it's it's interesting because we actually we talk about how um, Stephanie kind of has a as looking back she has a bunch of negative confessionals, but actually now we start to see that Bobby John has his fair share of negative confessionals as well. He actually has this one right here in the beginning of the episode where he's like, you know, I hope my tribe will learn something, but I don't think that they will. So it's clear that that you know these people are seeing starting to see the writing on the wall when it comes to this tribe. Yeah. We're just hoping for a merge at this point. Right. And and this is where, you know, in your head as as a viewer, like in my head, I was like, this can't continue. They have to win one and or the tribes are going to switch. But when you look back at it narratively, like I said, Stephanie and Bobby John are the heart and soul of Oolong. And they're who we're rooting for. More so Stephanie than Bobby John. But both of them are kind of like our underdogs. And Mike's right. Like in a vacuum, when you look at their confessionals, they're awfully complainy. Yeah. But See, what they're I, complaining about is they're complaining about Oolong, and that's the attitude we're supposed to have. At this point, we as an audience, even though we recognize Oolong as an underdog and we root for them, we're rooting more for Stephanie and Bobby John, we realize the fact that Oolong is just this horrible albatross sinking ship and that we need to realize that they suck. See, I would disagree with that. I don't think we're trying supposed to root for Bobby John and Stephanie. I think we're supposed to be rooting for Angie at this point. I think Angie is the hero. Well, you think Angie is the hero, but America disagreed with you. <laughs> I, I don't know that's true. I don't think the Stephanie stuff comes until started by, right about now. But I think up to this point, it's been the Angie story as the hero. Yes, but narratively, they're not setting like Angie's story is like on this mini arc where like we're seeing Angie like keep trying to fight. But mm-hmm. like if the story, if, if the if the overarching story is Oolong is the sinking ship. Bobby John and Stephanie's confessionals are distancing themselves from Oolong and pointing us out that, yeah, these guys aren't, aren't you know, are complaining about Oolong. They're right. Yeah, no, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I feel like if, if Angie really was built up as the hero, I think it would have been a much bigger story. Again, going back to 
you know, what we were talking about before, I feel like Angie has a big episode one and she has these great challenge moments in episodes two and three. But even like this episode, there's really not much to her. She really has those first couple of episodes to shine. And then her other episode is really the the next one, which is the double tribal council. But other than that, she's kind of prevalent, but she's not the, the Bobby John or the Stephanie or even like the James. Yeah, Angie Angie has established herself. Like she that first episode she's the outsider and she's still the outsider in in, in many respects, but in episode 2 she beast modes that reward challenge. And you know, you see like Bobby John come up to her and be like, "Man, you're awesome," you know? And then you know, he especially does that in episode 3 when Bobby John and Angie have that run where they get the final ring for Oolong. Like Am- Angie is in. They like her for challenges. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. All right, so here in episode four, we're going to get yet another example of Oolong being horrible at things. Oh, my God. Where they, they can't even uh, pick their tribe representative. Oh, my right. God. Just to fill you in on the history, if you haven't watched this episode in a while, this is the one where Jeff tells them, all right, both tribes have to pick a uh, tribal representative. He's going to make This person's going to make some important decisions you're all going to have to live with. And so it sounds like some sort of twist, like in Africa, some ambassador, or maybe some precursor to a, a merge, who knows. But they know that this, this person is going to do something important. And immediately at Karor, we get uh, Ian nominates Greg, but Tom nominates Ian. And since Tom is the leader, they just kind of go with what Tom says. So Ian is going to be the representative. And this, of course, leads to some some jealousy from people who may, may have wanted to be the leader, like Karen or Janu or Kobe. And this is really the first time where you start to see the dynamics of tribe uh, Karor, where the, it's really the popular five, which is Tom and Ian, of course, and then Katie, their third, and then the couple of uh, Greg and Jen. And then everybody else is the four. They're not the popular kids, which is Kobe, Willard, Karen, and Janu, I believe. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so this is the first time we ever see how Karor is really structured. It's all because of Tom making a unilateral decision to nominate Ian. It is It is sort of out of nowhere when you watch it. It's, it's great because... They talk about it because they keep saying, like, well, what if that person doesn't come back? What if they, you know, do this thing? So they keep trying to, you know, figure that out as to what they can live with. And, you know, Kobe does mention apparently that, you know, he's, he says in a confessional, like, I kept saying, I'll go or and, and whatnot, and they wouldn't listen to me. But you can see the fact that, like, they sort of you – know, Ian sort of says Greg, and everyone's like Greg, and Greg's like, well, I would do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I could totally do that. And then they go, Tom, what do you think about that? And Tom says – well, what about Ian? And then yeah, everyone's is, like, "Yeah, Ian." Which is which is interesting. I'm wondering what Tom's rationale behind that was. My thought is that maybe he, maybe because Ian's basically his number two, and he figures that the representative will have some sort of power that no matter what power Ian's given, he'll make sure not to screw Tom out of it. Whereas Greg might be a little more shady. That's my only. That's my rationale behind oh, yeah. it. I, that's absolutely what I think. Yeah, you, you want to be a part of it, but you don't want to be the one that has to do it. So you send your number two. Yeah, I think Tom thought that he and Ian were tight. So it's like even if Ian's gone and is on the other tribe or they shuffle up the tribes, like Ian will look out for Tom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually sets up a nice dynamic. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this in future parts with the other episodes, but I feel like especially in the pre-merge, Tom, and actually it happens a lot in this episode too with the, with the, with the bathroom building. Like Tom does an interesting job of really pumping up Ian as like a co-leader. As much as Tom is really pushed out there as the main person front and center, I feel like he's really trying to kind of drag Ian up with him so that he doesn't become the main target. He has this other guy to be like, well, Ian's making decisions as well. And that way the tribe won't say like, oh, Tom's the big head honcho of the tribe. Now, do you think Tom is really being that, 
you know, deceptive or like a Machiavellian, or is he really just think that they have like a father son thing going on? I would I say, based on his actions later in the season, I would say that Tom is definitely capable of that. Yeah, see, I, I just don't think he is, but again, it's open to interpretation. Who knows? I think he's definitely capable of it, and I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I, I think it's almost like. I think a lot of times when people try to rationalize a survivor decision, they try to pin one motive to things. You know, yeah. like Tom was thinking this, and so this was it. And I'm sure that in a lot of ways that is exactly what happens. But, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know what? Okay, always going back to a season we totally hate, but, you know, going back to All Stars, right? When Boston Rob, like, lets everyone have the letters instead of watching the video from his brother. Like, he mentions it. He's like, I honestly wanted the people to have the letters. But it also will carry some weight in the game, too. And I don't mind that, right? And it's like, two things are crossing his mind. And I totally think that he thought both things. Like, I think he genuinely wanted people to have their letters because he's like, I don't necessarily need the video for my brother. But he's also like, people will like this. This is a good survivor move. And so I think that Tom's kind of doing the same thing. I think Tom is trying to get some deflection with Ian. But also, I think that he also finds a bond in Ian, perhaps a father and son bond that he's kind of doing as well. Yeah. All right. So, so we have Ian picked as the representative at Karor at Oolong. Yet again, one more scene where James insists that there's no leader, yet he will act like the leader. So they're supposed to pick the representative for uh, Oolong, and James says, "I pick Steph." And Steph says, "Hey, we're picking out of a hat." Yeah. I pick Steph. We're picking out a hat. And what's great is that they can't even get the, go through on that. And then they're basically like, well, let's, let's go to the challenge and then we'll just see what it is. <laughs> they can't yeah. even agree on which hat to pick out of. I love that. I mean, we'll skip forward. We'll, we'll, uh, you know, we'll talk about it in a second. But when Jeff goes to, <laughs> when Jeff goes to visit them, he said, who would you pick as a representative? The first response they have is, can we ask questions? <laughs> it was just no like question you... and answer, period. <laughs> That's the best. So anyway, Jeff goes up and again, sort of, you know, World War II themed. They come with this, you know, home, you know, it, it basically is one of those like almost like a troop transport sort of looking thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, on it, it's got this big, uh, it's got a Home Depot logo real big on it. And it's got like the big, um, a big, basically a tool chest. And he basically comes up and says, all right, Koro, who's your leader? They're like, Ian, like Ian, step up here. And he basically explains the challenge. And the challenge is you're going to, they're going to give you. Uh, some timber and you know a a a, a toilet seat and you know a a, shower, a portable shower and some other things. And basically, what you're going to do is you're going to create a a bathroom. You're going to build a bathroom with these materials. And why Ian was chosen the leader is he's a project leader and B he gets to choose like what five or six tools out of that tool six chest. Tools. Yeah. Six tools out of the tool chest for the tribe to use, other than these materials and some things we give you. And basically. You have to build yourself a bathroom, and it has to look awesome. And we're going to bring not Rafa to look at your sh- your bathroom. Uh, I know that's so sad, but you know, we're going to bring our our production guy who builds all of the challenges, and he's going to judge your bathroom. And if he likes it, they're going to build you the shelter of the lifetime. Jesse, Jesse's the guy's name. Jesse, yeah, he has, he has a degree in construction management, so you know he's legit. <laughs> all I know is that it's not Rafa, and so I'm going to refer to him as not Rafa. Well, I love that they picked Ian, whose dad happens to own a construction company, so Ian knows exactly what to pick. Can you imagine if they pick someone like Karen to be the representative, and she's like, which one's a hammer? Well, she would, just, she would pick everything that looks like a stick and throw it in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, you're going you gonna, you gonna to criticize that? 
<laughs> you gonna tell me what to do? I could throw a stick in a fire. <laughs> yeah, but All it's right. interesting actually. With Ian, this brings up a good point. I feel like Ian has like a. It's almost like a, a, a another version of coach that he he has a bunch of very odd experiences. Like he talks about in an interview that he he does so well in that first immunity challenge with the with the rowing because he used to teach whitewater rafting to people and now he apparently worked on a farm and his dad works in construction and he also is a dolphin trainer like he has this odd odd life that gives him all these specialized skills that apparently pay off for him in the game of survivor you should hear how many times he's thrown a ball underhanded at tiles (laughs) i I, well on that subject and i guess i'll i'll speak my piece about this now sometimes there are people that play the game like survivor is not a game that's inherently fair I mean, I'll, a lot of people say, I love the game because of the pure strategy element of the game and the fact that it's the game's not, it's not level playing field right off the bat. You know, like of these 20 people that started out playing this game, it's not like everyone had a one in 20 shot of winning the game. There were some people that just don't have a chance. And there's some people that have a better of a chance and there's some people that can sort of make something of what's going on. And, you know, there are just some people that, just by being themselves, they are 90% better at Survivor than just other people. Mm-hmm. And Ian is one of those people where, yeah, Ian, you know, people think of all the bonehead, the, the quote-unquote bonehead move he makes sort of at the end of the season. But it's like, think of these unique skills that Mike pointed out. Like, oh, my dad works on a farm and I, you know, I have whitewater training and he's a dolphin trainer. So he's clearly good at swimming and in the water and he's this physical beast and he's super nice and you know ian just being ian is better than most people at survivor you know just naturally like he's without putting any thought ian is good yeah absolutely it just goes back to the charm thing that's what they always said about uh jervis and borneo that he was almost impossible to vote out because you like him he's so charming you know and and just he ian's got these random set of backgrounds it's going to be very good and so ian happens to be at home and he picks tools and He's excited, and they've got a plan, and they get going. So then Jeff gets the boat over to Oolong, and they're just coming in from fishing. And Jeff's like, hey, guys, who's your representative? <laughs> Can we ask questions? You haven't picked a representative? <laughs> I love Jeff's growing frustration with Oolong because it starts off as kind of like a marvel to him. But by like episode like five or six, he's like, okay. We're going to sit down at Tribal Council and we're going to figure out what's going on with you guys. Like, clearly he's just fed up with everything. He, like, tries to give them triage at that point. You know, it's <laughs> funny. Like, in episode one, they can't paddle a boat. And he's just, like, he does that, like, Jeff Probst grin. You know, that he's just like, Oolong, not going to the right place. You know, but then he's just like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, they, so they end up uh, they end up forcing James to be the Bobby leader. John. Yeah, Bobby John chooses James. Yeah, which ends up coming in handy because as James looks at the tools, apparently that is his stuff. Hell yeah. I know a couple things about tools. Hell yeah. That's my stuff. Come on. Yeah, so they basically explain it, and Jeff's like, yeah, pick out the tools. And What I love is that, you know, he's like, I know about the tools, and he picks out that, like, hatchet with the, with the peen end, you know, and he's just like, this here, this is a hatchet on one end, this is a hammer on the other end. <laughs> oh my god and here you get Steph just like good 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 pick James <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he has an interesting I, I, the other the other tool that I really remember him picking is the staple gun which is like a really interesting thing to pick 
Yeah, like what? Well, you never know. I mean, it's resourceful out there on the island, but you think like because Jeff says that you could, you know, w- w- the six tools you pick, you can use in the challenge, and then you can keep them for your for your camp life, right? Yeah. And he's just like, you know, that that staple gun that's gonna come in such handy, <laughs> so great. <laughs> Especially when James points it at his own eye later when he's repairing it. <laughs> I want to see like a this old house, this old house episode with James. <laughs> Bob Vila is like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> I know a little something about septic systems. Uh, this house will definitely not fall down. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> My God says that this house will be strong. <laughs> oh. So anyway, they they get set to building bathrooms, basically. And, you know, if you didn't know who was building the better bathroom, just follow the music cues. It's not hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just picture Randy Quaid to be there at, like, the Oolong bathroom. Shitter's full. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you see Karor and you see even Katie, you know, that gets a... Get, you know, gets accused probably fairly later on of not lifting a lot of finger in camp life. Like Katie's there and she's, you know, clearing a path. So basically they clear a path away to their commode. But I think what ultimately wins them this challenge more than just, you know, gross incompetency by James. But you see the fact that they build this commode, they're building their supports, you know, sort of under the ground. They're building this nice square structure that's sturdy, you know, and then you get to Oolong where, you know, James is He's what measuring, you know, the butt to the ground, and you know, just he's just doing odd measurements. He's like, now when I get the squat, a squat, can you measure that real quick? <laughs> she's like twenty two. Twenty two sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it's random measurements just going on, and they just build the structure just from the ground up, and you know, they're just like, how about this thing? Oh, honey, we're gonna nail it. <laughs> yeah, I just love, I love this segment because it also highlights. The leadership of Tom versus the leadership of James. Uh, in particular, it seems like Tom and Ian are kind of taking uh, that like cheerleader approach of like every time somebody does something good, they make sure to say like, "Oh, you're this is fantastic. You're doing a fantastic job. We really appreciate the work you're doing right now." Whereas James, apparently on the, on the other side, is like patronizing and like trying to, you know, he's convinced that Angie and Steph don't know how to hammer a nail, and you know, he's like running around saying like, "Oh, this will work. Don't worry. I, I know what I'm doing. This will work." Yeah, and again, it's something I think you pointed out earlier that Willard doesn't talk much, but when he does, it's usually something pretty insightful. And he's the one that points out that Tom and Ian do that, that every single day they'll walk around and they'll compliment at least every person at least once with what they're doing. Willard knows what's up. He Everything Willard says is like Willard hits it on the money, you know? And with this one, he's just like, yeah, he notices that Tom and Ian are very diplomatic in what they're doing. Willard is saying Tom and Ian are very good at Survivor right now. Yes. And then Karen is annoyed that she can't throw a stick in the fire without Tom's permission. <laughs> Ooh, Tom. Oh, Tom. Let me throw the stick in the fire, Tom. <laughs> Mike, you love Karen. I, she is my <laughs> fire in my soul that I will throw a stick in. <laughs> or is she your gene? She, I, she, she honestly is my gene. <laughs> I will I will I will say that. I will admit it. She is she is my gene and I have never vehemently disliked a person that I don't know as much as I do Karen Grodel. <laughs> she does. I mean, we're, we're we're totally not getting into it today and I'm I, I will save the ammunition later, but you know, 
in the season where people talk about certain people making boneheaded moves and Ulan being boneheaded, I think she makes the single most boneheaded move in the whole game. We'll get there later. But yeah, I mean, you know, Karen. Because Karen sucks. Because Karen sucks. I mean, it's just a great quote and, you know. And it's a perfect summary of every single thing Karen has done. (laughs) Karen sucks. Maybe suckiest means the suckiest at heart. (laughs) Back to the gene thing. Thank you. Oh, God. It's good. But uh, so anyway, the 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 building continues, and then uh, you know basically if if you can't figure it out by now, you know Tom and Ian are doing well, and we know that Tom and Ian do things well, and and stuff like that, and you get the courageous music while they're building their thing, and then you get over to Oolong, and they're putting their touches, and it doesn't look too terrible, but the music tells you perhaps they're not doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, I like that that you said courageous music plays. It's the only courageous bathroom music ever. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> You know, and, and they're not doing well, and then we get, you know, a nice insightful confessional from Kim, who was spared from going home last week by or last episode by Jeff rolling his ankle, who's basically like, I have a front row seat to all these people going crazy, but I'm not really gonna work or do anything. I'm just gonna sit here. Yes. Yeah, she's she this is the one where she says that she's the smart one in the center of a group of people that are like chickens with their heads cut off. Which is kind of accurate because Oolong sort of is chickens with their head cut off, but it's like Kim what part of not doing anything is going to help this at all? If the chickens are running, just run with the chickens. Exactly. Pretend you have your head cut off with them. Or try to corral them, like bring them in and basically say, all right, can we focus for a second instead of just like, well, I'm just going to sit here and watch. <laughs> all right. So we finished the building and now Jesse or not Rafa comes to judge the competition. What a freaking disappointment Jesse is. Like, oh, man. What a lack of personality this guy is. Like, yes, I get Mad props to him because, they, as they say, not only does he have the degree in in ar- architecture management or whatever it is, what, yeah, what is con- his d- construction construction con- construction management? management? Yeah, yeah. Not only that, but you know, he is the you know, as they said, he's the project leader for most of the uh, challenge building on Survivor. So you know, total rock star, right? Like, you know, awesome guy and and probably a great person to judge this challenge. But but where's Rafa? Uh, I don't just know. get a room, would you? Jeez, what do you, you What do you mean us? we're in a different part of the world? We can bring him over. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Rafa, do you like James's commode? Oh no! Oh no! No! Oh, I really, I really wish, just for you know nostalgia's sake, that Karor had built a swing into their toilet. <laughs> Wee! Come on, wait! No props for Oolong doing a for a good time called Jeff Probst joke. Oh, that was great. That's, That's good. Should have been for for manly loving call sea bass. Kick his ass, sea bass. But anyway, uh, well, we get the, we get the shot of Jeff Probst and and Jesse, you know, coming in sunglasses, the nice you know deal with it moment, and they they come in and you know they're like, this is Jesse, and then Tom basically going through their thought process, and you know Jeff Jesse's keeping his cards close to the vest. He's not doing a lot of shaking like Rafa. He just he's nodding his approval, and you know he's you know got the nice strand trying. That's good, mate. And you know. Eh. Walkway's a nice touch, you know, and he's just going around and looking at things, and you you could just see him give everything kind of a quick shake, and you can I, you can tell he's just kind of figuring out sturdiness, right? And you know, I think he also liked the fact that Karor made their uh, shower kind of adjustable in 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 height, which which he sort of enjoyed. And then we get over to Oolong, who's still nailing nails as the boat uh, comes up, which you know is never a good sign. That's true. Well, at least at least they didn't go, at least they didn't go down. At least they didn't go down, but then they were like, 
Hey, uh, James, do you want to give him a tour? Hell yeah. You want the tour? <laughs> Their tour is much easier since their two structures are right next to each other. They are right next to each other. They had the, the, the commode and the shower facing each other. Mm-hmm. Kind of. I mean, I guess there was the, the palm frond partition or the, the little partition, the, the cloth partition they had. But still, like, yeah, there was the, the, the commode and, and, the, and the shower right next to each other. And you can see Jesse give it a quick shake. Like, they didn't build it into the ground. They just built it on top of the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, again, Wulong really lost points. No glory hole. <laughs> I was going to say they should have built the walls a little stronger in Oolong because, you know, with Bobby John, he's so angry. If he's, ever, <laughs> if, if he's constipated, if he can't work something out, like, he's just going to go raging around that bathroom and <laughs> hitting things. So. Kick it down. Yeah. First time he doesn't have enough fiber, those walls are coming down. <laughs> it's coming down. I, I I do admit I do like the uh, I did like the, the clamshell sink that they put in there and all the toothbrushes. I thought that was a nice touch. It was right out of Demolition Man with the three seashells. <laughs> Where were the other two? There was only the one seashell. I don't understand how the process works. So anyway, Karor wins by a lot. They win by a lot, and I think that you know the main thing was that Mike's right. Like. When you're watching it, I mean, the music cue is telling you that Oolong is going to lose. But you can see James, they're talking about like the, the, uh, the toothbrush rack with like the, you know, reed toothbrushes they put in there that were fun. And they had the little clamshell sink. Like, I think they got like kind of fun little creative like that. But I think the plan was build a sturdy bathroom. Yeah. Functional. Yeah. And, and they didn't do that. Yeah. Although James, of course, in his endless, uh, no lack of uh, confidence, predicts. Oh, I think that we won. No doubt. Look at it. It's perfect. They'll be back in about, I estimate, two, three hours. Two, three hours, right? <laughs> yeah. So then, uh, you know, you see shots of them sitting around. Then you see Karor sitting around. And, of course, the boat comes around the corner of Karor Beach. And they, you know, celebrate that they've won. And Ian's super happy. And then, basically, you could see them. And I don't know how long the the production crew was there building it. But they basically build this, like, incredibly awesome roofed, peaked shelter with a, a second room for a hammock, and then they also build them what, like a, a, a table? Yeah, picnic table. A picnic table. And did they build them some other stuff? I don't know. But they, uh, they, they built them like a weird little like platform that's off the ground. Oh yeah, like a bamboo a, looking thing. And they gave them a lantern, and then they uh, the big the big prize that Karor celebrates is that they get a big crate with two bottles of champagne. <laughs> Which you know, Tom gets lit and Karen gets lit. It's kind of fun. We get to hear Karen's laugh. Yeah. Wow! Like, I, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what children hear at night, and they wake up screaming. Oh, Mike! <laughs> if you die in your dreams, you die for real. Fucking Karen! <laughs> Fucking Karen! <laughs> so anyway, all I wrote in my notes here is that Karora all of a sudden has the greatest uh, shelter in Survivor history. So this is officially the first haves versus have-not seasons at this yeah. point. This is yep. a haves, have-nots. Like, that shelter that Kuro had is just dynamite. Yep. And, you know, Oolong is just furious that they lost. They can't believe it. And James, again, ever more predictions where James says, we're so angry now, we're going to run through them like a dang bulldozer. They won the first three times. That was their time. It's our time now. I also do love the uh, just the, the fading thing where, like, it's nighttime and, you know, there, James, I think, says, you know, so I guess they won. And what I, what I love is then it's then like you hear Stephanie and Stephanie's like, I don't get it. <laughs> that was the first prediction James ever made that was correct. I guess they won. Well done, James. And it was right. And it was after the fact. 
Yes. James is the master of retroactive history. <laughs> All right. So now we get up. To, we're going to finish off our podcast here with one of absolutely my favorite immunity challenges in Survivor history. The sumo gladiator battle. sumo fights. Yeah, this one's so cool. And again, it's World just, War II themed. It looks like a mini helipad. Yeah. It's so does. good. And the sumo wrestlers were Japanese. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to go for a World War II tie-in, damn it. No, this next episode with the sake bottles. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, is sumo's not Japanese? Am I incorrect there? You, you, you are correct. All right. All right. So, yes, they get up on the little landing, landing pad, and uh, they square off with the, the little pillows, and it's the first, uh, first tribe who can knock the other tribe off six times wins immunity. And this is one of these great challenges, and it's, it's just a good challenge in general. But this one's particularly exciting, the way it plays out. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm very frequently wrong, and, and people will let me know. Thank you, everyone, for telling me how wrong I am all the time. But uh, is this the first time this sumo challenge is reared its head in Survivor? Yes, I believe so, because I think it's only shown up in this specific style here and then in Fiji and Heroes versus Villains. Yeah, I mean, they repeat it after that, you know, a, a couple of times. And, and we've, we've definitely had the, you know, if it's not solely this, they've had parts of, you know, they, they get more and more physical with, with challenges like that uh, and whatnot. But, yeah, th- this is the first time the sumo challenge has reared its head in Survivor, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is unique. Yeah, you get some great matchups right at the start. You got Tom versus Bobby John, where Bobby John doesn't even get a chance to go into beast mode because Tom kicks his ass pretty quick. Well, like Bobby John beast mode right off the bat. Like when Jeff says go, like Bobby John kind of like roars and goes after him, but like that's it. Yeah, well, like, yeah, because, because, well, basically when he does it, Tom like gives him like a little push sideways and he gets knocked off his feet. So Tom just swipes at him again and he goes in easy both times. Well, no, like the first one, I, if I recall, it wasn't the first challenge. Like, didn't it go a little bit longer? But, like, Bobby John staggers Tom, but then Tom basically gets low. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bobby John has him, actually, at the start. Now, you're right. The first time, Bobby John actually has Tom on the ropes. He has Tom on the ropes, but then Tom gets low, and Bobby John can't push him off. And then Tom sort of does that deflective style where he sort of rolls into the rage, and, mm-hmm. then, he, and then he gets Bobby John going. And it's the second time, I think, where Bobby John basically just charges at Tom, and Tom's like... All right. See ya. (laughs) And we're about to follow a pattern here where the men will always win for Karor and the women will always win for Oolong for a while. So Bobby John loses to Tom right off the bat. And it's just Bobby John goes crazy and Tom just outsmarts him. And then what's the second one? Steph versus Jen? Yeah. Steph defeats Jen for the 82nd time this season. Tanya Harding does not prevail. (laughs) Yes. And then we have Greg versus Ibrahim. Even though Ibrahim's nine feet tall and built yeah. like a Greek god, Greg beats him pretty easily. What I love well, is that the, Jeff Probst yeah. even mentions, like, Ibrahim's got a reach advantage. It's like, boy, does he. Well, this is also <laughs> the one with, like, the technicality where, like, Ibrahim doesn't even fall off the platform. The bag just falls in the water. And so he really can't do anything. And Greg just pushes him in. Yeah. yeah. And then Angie comes up there and just absolutely obliterates Karen. Yeah, Angie versus Karen. It's like, this is fair. It was God, great I wish Mike, I, yeah, Mike was applauding. I was going to say, I wish I was Angie in that moment. If I could, like, quantum leap into any, anybody, it would be Angie in, those, in that one minute. Oh, my God, a quantum leap reference. It was a good old-fashioned cat fight with Karen. Ugh. Uh, sell that cat. I don't want that cat. But do, you, do, you, do you think that your leap out of the body would be pushing Karen in the water? Like, that seems too easy of an episode for Sam. No, it would probably be, like, rolling Karen into a fire. <laughs> what, is she a stick? <laughs> no, that's Janu. Speaking of sticks, don't we have Janu squaring off against Kim in the yeah, Janu and in, Kim. The, in the in the ultimate, you know, do nothing off? 
Yeah, what's this? The preliminary bout? What's the, what do they call the first match of a boxing card? That's the Janu versus Kim match. In, in pro wrestling, that's the curtain jerker, right? Like the first one. <laughs> yes, that's them. It's a double count out. That's how that one ends. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah so, James versus Kobe. Yeah, James, you know, you think James will be tough and strong, but Kobe's like a good eight inches taller and 80 pounds heavier than James. Yeah, that I don't even know. Like, I mean, you know, in retrospect, going that James doesn't beat Kobe, but like, you watch them go up there, and you, you have Kobe, who's like, who, who has got some size and some strength behind him, and then you have like skinny James go up there, and you're like, there's no way James can win this. Yeah, damn. I mean, especially with the homosexuals be working out in a gym and all. Damn. Oh my God, James! Holy yeah. crap! Holy yeah, we'll get to that in a second. So anyway, Carora is up five to two after the after the fantastic uh, Janu stomping of Kim. So Carora's up five to two. They're one away from winning. You think it's all over again, and here comes the great Oolong comeback. Yeah, where Steph, uh, they go up 5-2 because there's a Bobby John uh, uh, Tom rematch where this this is the second time where Tom very quickly dispatches a Bobby John. And then it's uh, Steph versus Jen again, right? Yeah, Yeah. Jen, 0 for 83 on the season now against Stephanie. Stephanie just doesn't, isn't this the one where like Stephanie just like upends her into the water? Well, oh this no! Is this that, is a great. Yeah, this is a yeah, long battle. This is yeah. a big fight. struggle. They're like on the ground multiple times, rolling around, trying to push each other in. But Steph's able to get the the upper edge and finally like nudge her into the water. Yeah, and then we get Ibrahim's one good moment of the season. Oh, this is amazing! This is yeah, so good. Goes, goes up against Greg, and Ibrahim just shoves him off with like the reach advantage. He's like, "Get your ass up off here!" Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Like it's emotion from Ibrahim. Like he's so you know he's so quiet and reserved, you know, and and seems so friendly. And it's like you know, hey, quiet people can go beast mode in challenges. We have Bobby John as an example, right? But yeah. it's like Ibrahim, he just gets a thing, and he, I just love that. Get your ass off! Like it's so it's such a good character moment, right? And I was just yeah. like, man, I wish we had more of those from him. It's yeah. just one moment. And now, yeah, so Karora is up five four and. Angie. Karen comes up to finishes them off, but Karen has to get through Angie, and Angie, of course, is uh, having none of it, so she absolutely blasts Karen one more time, and then Angie, with the one of the more famous quotes in Survivor history, we're not going back to immunity. No, you're not. Tribal council, I mean. <laughs> oh, oh, stick with immunity, because no, you're not going to that immunity. No, no, you were right the first time. <laughs> it's one of these great quotes, big epic quotes, but she words it wrong. Yeah, and then, so like, act- and then like, like, like Jeff is like, Angie doesn't even know what she's yeah. saying. In the next episode, they edit it. They cut out the screw-up part. They just put the correct quote because they wanted it to sound more epic. Yeah. So anyway, it's 5-5 five to five after that because Angie, of course, hasn't lost in a challenge in about two weeks. And so now it's 5-5 five, five, and next one wins and it's Kobe against James in a rematch. <laughs> oh, boy. Poor James. And this one's actually, he does take a little longer this time. Yeah, this one's actually pretty exciting. And then it, it lasts a while and then Kobe finally rolls him off and knocks him off and it's a big moment, and I just wrote in my notes, what a great challenge, one of the all-time best, I just put most exciting. It was really, the way the music was played, the way the comeback came at the end, with all the emotion with Ibrahim and Angie just being pissed, I just thought this was a great challenge. Super solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good, and, and can we just talk very, very briefly, and we don't need to have a big conversation about it, but Kobe has been this, like, sort of under the radar character through these first four episodes. Like we got a bit of him in episode one, right? With the, with the initial challenge. And you know, we got him kind of chirping that the tribe isn't listening to him and what episode three ish or so, or, or no, this, this one yeah, at the beginning with the, with you know, the representative. Yeah. You know, we, we've got Kobe has had some confessional time through this and he's been given good confessionals so far, but 
you know, Kobe stuck out a long time in that endurance challenge with the bags and the and the running through the water, the classic challenge. In this one, he topples James twice. Like Kobe is there to play. Yeah, and he's a big guy. You don't think he's a big guy, but he is. Yeah. But, yeah, but James will, you know, very, very, you know, nicely put it, you know, in, in the next segment. Yes. All right. Here's the quote. James feels terrible to have my butt whooped by a homosexual, you know, but a lot of gay folks are strong, man. They all working out at the gym and all, you know, damn. So there you go. Very progressive thinking from James Miller. Yeah. I don't think we can really say much about that other than, wow, James. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so then we're going to go to tribal council, right? And we've got a consensus on Oolong, right? Uh, this is James or Kim, right? Yeah, it's uh, going to be either James or Kim tonight. And the girls are worried that they vote out Kim. They'll be down to the guys three to two. So Angie and Stephanie are a little worried here. That they're going to hand a little too much power to the guys. Which, which you know, now they're starting to, you know, this this somewhat makes sense. But it's just like with all the Oolong stuff in the past, this is just... Come on, guys. Let's let's get your stuff together for just for just one episode for one vote, right? And they just, you know, Angie and and and, uh, and Stephanie are like, well, we didn't lose. It's <laughs> a good point. Yeah, it's 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 very true, and it's like, and and you know, Angie actually brings up a good point of like, yes, if we lose, Kim will be outnumbered by the guys, but if they just keep losing challenges, that's not going to matter in the end anyway. Like if they yeah. get rid of Kim, they have a better chance of winning the challenge so that they won't go to tribal council and risk that situation. So like, yeah. it's really a, a, like they, they need to get rid of Kim no matter what the situation may be. They don't, they should stop worrying about the possibility of guys ganging up on them, which, you know, even though Angie goes the next time, it's really not the guys decide to gang up on the girls. Yeah. It's one of those, do you want to be down in numbers to the guys, or do you want to be down in numbers to the Karors? You pick. Well, there's that, but in a lot of ways, they just couldn't really make up their mind one way or the other. Because, you know, you can when you're voting out on your tribe, you know, sort of in the pre-merge segment, you know, you vote people out for various reasons, right? Like, you know, it's, as long as it ain't me, or you're trying to set up, you know, your power alliance, or or whatnot, but... You know, it just seemed like at the beginning they were just voting against people they didn't really care for, right? Like Jolanda was too bossy, so they voted out Jolanda, right? You know, and Jolanda's a good was was a nice strong individual. So she doesn't her vote out doesn't fit with we need to keep the tribe strong. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they, they vote out Ashley because she's weak. And it's like they keep voting out like strong, weak, strong, weak, strong and it's like you you need to pick a strategy and stick with it. Are you keeping the strong people or are you just getting them out and Maybe we'll win a challenge along the way. And I mean, they just are all over the board with this stuff. Yep. So we are about to lose yet another one of the more forgettable characters in Palau, Kim. Which happens. I have nothing more to say about it other than Jeff has a great Jeff Probes dick moment where he gets to tribal council and he says, Hey, I saved your seats from last time, guys. Oh my God, Jeff Probes uh, dick moment. I love it. Because he's clearly having a lot of fun at this point. He's like, All right, I'm gonna <laughs> let me just lean into the curve here as we watch this train wreck occur. Is this the point where you think the producers are like, let's not shuffle it, let's just let this ride? Yeah, it's almost like they just didn't like the oolongs. Like, let's just let him let, let him let it ride out and see what happens. Yeah, I, I, for some reason I have this image of like a Truman Show-esque control room where, like, the producers are standing there and, like, one person's holding up a finger, like, no, let him linger. Don't switch him. Let's just see what happens. Oh, but I thought all the Survivor things were planned out ahead of time. That's what they say. 
Oh yeah, of course, yes, of yeah, course. Of course, yeah. I mean, of course that's true. <laughs> so anyway, and then we got one more quote from James here at Tribal Council that that boy got some ass behind him talking about Kobe. So Kobe beat him because he's homosexual and goes to the gym and he also has some ass behind him. So this you're wondering. Is, this is one where Jeff is trying to dissect what's going on in this tribe and like every answer they give is just making it worse. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And with that, we have reached the end of episode four. And it was, surprisingly, I don't want to spoil it for you, but things do not get better for Oolong. No, you, you would you say that things get a lot, lot worse, specifically in the next episode, which is probably the worst point that we'll, that we'll find Oolong in, or at least the most vocally yeah. uh, bad we'll find Oolong in. Well, Stu and Rupert will do that to people, so that's what happens sometimes. Don't forget about the biscuits. <laughs> the biscuits! Oh my god, they have biscuits. All right, so we've got through four episodes of Survivor Palau, which are among the more painful ones if you're a new long fan. And again, they're not going to get much better. So <laughs> we, have, we have a lot to come up before we get to some really fascinating stuff happening at the end of the season. But we do have to get through a little filler here first. We do apologize to all those Oolong fans out there. <laughs> exactly. Stephanie's mom, Bobby John's dad. Who else? Uh, yeah. Think Don't worry. All, all you Karen fans, you Satanists out there, well, there'll be plenty more to talk about with her. <laughs> Uh, so anything else you guys have to add about these episodes or this season so far no i think we're just trucking along at a good pace yeah yeah that's about it so i guess uh we should sign off we're gonna keep this right about right under three hours today that's pretty good it's not bad it's not Not bad. bad back in the saddle yeah it's good it's good to know that we're not gonna go back to immunity we're back in the saddle here All right. Uh, yeah. So uh, again, if you guys are enjoying this, we have part two of Palau will be coming up pretty soon where we'll go through the middle episodes, probably five through about nine or ten, because we're going to want to save a lot of time at the end for the Ian and Tom stuff. But uh, yeah, this is a season that not one of the more ones that I enjoy the most, but I, I'm having fun watching it this time just because of like Jay pointed out, there's a, it's a very conceptual season. There's a lot of uniqueness about it, just things that never happen in any other season, whether good or bad. So it's just kind of a, a unique season to watch. And Above all else, the theme is top-notch. If nothing else, you have to appreciate Palau for the theme, the World War II theme, which is just a lot of thought was put into it, and I just love the way that they, they pulled it off. That and, uh, you know, other than the first episode, because I think, didn't you mention that in theory was it supposed to be a longer episode and it got chopped down to a normal size? I didn't say that. Mike's, Mike got it confused with what I said about Vanuatu, actually. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't this one. Episode one feels rushed. I mean, a lot's happening. Mm-hmm. But but episode one feels rushed. But episodes two, three, and four, especially, they're very well paced. I mean, you know, it's just it's nice classic pacing of 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 a season. You got you, you get good shops camp life with the with the challenges coming in there, and just that with the theme and just you know a lot of the stuff going on. I mean, they are just they're very good episodes. Like they're, I wouldn't say they're exceptional by any stretch of the imagination, but there's not a lot bad going on. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I mean, say what you want about. The characters, uh, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of like a handful of them that don't aren't really uh, fleshed out too much. You have your Ibrahims, your Jens, even like Ashley and a little bit of Kim somewhat. But like in terms of just a general storytelling aspect, they do a really great job of uh, including a lot of strategic moments and a lot of a lot of character based moments, especially on Karor, so that we really got to know them. Whereas I feel like, again, in a lot of modern seasons, the tribe that keeps winning, we really don't find out too too much about them we look at fiji as an example but i feel like here we really get to know the, the dynamics the dynamics on karor so that when they 
do go to Tribal Council next episode, we get to see a little bit of what happens when they have to start drawing blood. Yep, and we are about to enter the part of the season that I call the Stephanie section. And then after that, we have the Tom and Ian section. So the first part's just kind of the preamble. The really important stuff's coming up. All right, I think that's going to be it for uh, part one of Palau. Again, for Survivor Historians, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. And I'm Mike Bloom. And make sure you go work out at the gym and all if you want to battle James, because that's uh, the one way to beat him. All right, so we'll talk to you later. And uh, again, if you have any questions or comments, please email us at survivorhistorians at gmail.com. Thank you. Goodbye. Jeff's a son bitch. I'll tell you that. Hell, I thought we were going to get you know, some breakfast, food, and water or something. Hell no. I knew he was going to say something like that, and he's going to say, the game is on. Something told me we was pretty much in trouble. 